It's September 15th, and we wish you a good Wednesday morning here on Real Talk. It's uh, in our neck of the woods as we put this show out to you live streaming on the Mixler Audio app, live streaming on YouTube, and of course, to be released later across the podcast network. In our neck of the woods, it's it's kind of a, a cool, cloudy, drizzly kind of a morning, and that track from... Ayla Brooke and the Soundman, Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records just really hit the spot. I was tempted to just let that keep going for a little bit. This episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. Uh, Check this out from this morning's Business Insider. It's being reported on CNBC and and others as well at the uh, SALT conference on Monday. Innovation investor Kathy Woods. Uh, Kathy Wood predicts that Bitcoin is going to surge to $500,000 in five years. It's uh, Last I checked, it's about forty five grand us right now. So she's expecting it to go 10x from right now, says that her company, ARK, invests confidence in Bitcoin and Ethereum has shot up dramatically. She says that they're investing right now 60% Bitcoin, 40% Ethereum. Interesting stuff. I would never tell you to sell your house or cash in your RSPs or take your savings from under the bed. And well, I might tell you to do that. That's not a smart investment. So I might tell you to take the cash from under the bed and buy Bitcoin with it. But let me tell you this. If you're intrigued by Bitcoin or if you have questions about Ethereum or anything else relating to cryptocurrency, I would recommend that you go talk to the team at Bitcoin Well. And you can start by finding them under the sponsors tab on our website, RyanJesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We are moving today at a clip. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I'll talk to Negan Sinclair, a writer, commentator, a, a professor at the University of Manitoba. Uh, columnist at the Winnipeg Free Press as our uh, election 44 coverage continues. We're now five days away from election day. And I would guess that uh, I won't say the majority, but I bet you that a significant, a a decent, decent, I bet you a decent number of of real talkers of our audience members have already voted. I would think some advance polls have been open. People are doing some mail-in ballots. Uh, Although, who was it? One of our commentators of the past couple of days, I'm having a hard time nailing it down who it was, was, was pointing out that we, we haven't seen nearly the number of, of requests for mail-in ballots as they have in past years. So I wonder if we'll see participation down across the board. But I don't know. I mean, when you say dece, decent, I always yeah. go dece. You got to go dece. But remember, I established, I established that rule here early when you I, there's not a lot of rules working here. That, that's one of them. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the abbreviation the, like turning obviously to obvs. Uh, oh, I love that. Stuff. No. Yeah. But see, we don't do that within these four walls. So. A lot of these folks uh, on the <laughs> chatterbox were saying that they had done advanced yeah. uh, polls. And I went myself and the lineup like I had to stand in line and I like I was I was just chuffed that yeah. that was the experience. I was I like, was, oh, look at all of us. I was look surprised to hear this. Oh, wait. Chuffed is good. Chuffed is great. Okay, chuffed is positive. Uh, Carrie and I, my wife and I, have a have a language barrier. We break down uh, in conversation, and uh, because uh, she she uses uh, apparently Manitobans uh, use a word uh, to describe somebody that uh, Albertans use, and they they mean opposite things. And so in Alberta, or I don't think it's Alberta. I mean, my assertion here is that I'm talking around the world. Let me ask you this a question. I, I won't even I won't even I don't want to make any assumptions. 
if if it was a welcomed forum where you would not mind receiving a compliment, I would like to clarify that. Right. I'm not talking about, you know, you're working in a lounge and some guys like, hey, sweetheart, like I'm not talking about that. But like, let's say that you, you're in a lot, you know, you're in a relationship. It's somebody you trust. It's somebody you don't mind. And 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 you're getting ready to go out. And it's a big night on the town. And you come around the corner and the person says to you, what a stunner. What would you say? How would you feel? Would you be OK with that? I would blush. It's a compliment. Absolutely. So apparently in Manitoba, apparently in Manitoba, a stunner is like, like yeah like uh did you hear larry got 11 percent on his math test yeah he's a bit of a stunner <gasps> yeah so we discovered this as we're going back in and in, in your upbringing sam stunner positive negative in Abs- your positive absolutely okay, positive. Thank something you. is a stunner it's doing well apparently manitobans and and our audience tuning in from manitoba this morning if, if you're on the live chat would love to see it if you can keep an eye on that for me i got too much going on in front of me right now we got this busy show but <laughs> Stunner. I got nothing else to do. Positive, negative. That might be my next unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll, as a matter of fact. I called Carrie a stunner once. She's like, pardon me? I was like, what do you mean, pardon you? It's a huge compliment. Did she also go, oh, I love these dainties. And you were like, underwear? What? I was out this weekend. Did I I tell you the CFL story? Or is dainties another example? Manitoba and dainties, those are like um, appetizers, like little sandwiches Yeah, dainties. Yeah. But dainties elsewhere. What are dainties elsewhere? Underwear? Undies. Yeah, yeah, undies, dainties, your dainties. Your dainties. Got it. Um, either way, you can get edibles. You know, I, I think edible dainties back in the day were hot sellers at that San Francisco store, weren't they? <laughs> we're gonna, so our election coverage continues with Negan Sinclair uh, coming up in, in, I guess, about five minutes now. We're also going to be talking about um, Alberta's, I, I saw Edwin Munt on Twitter put it this way, the I can't believe it's not a vaccine passport Vaccine passport, uh, not a vaccine passport, but a printable card. Uh, is it effective? Will it work? What do people think about it? We're going to talk to former chief medical officer of health, Dr. James Talbot, who has made himself available on multiple occasions through the pandemic for this show. The guy has walked miles in the shoes that Dr. Dina Hinshaw is wearing right now. Yes, we're going to play you a portion of that video that was captured. Alberta's current chief medical officer of health, Dr. Hinshaw, basically saying, Yeah, the reason that Alberta's numbers are basically double the next closest province when it comes to cases. I see we're at a record number. I see you right now, by the way, Uh, not a record for the fourth wave, a record period for COVID-19. More than 200 Albertans are in ICU. More than 90 percent of them are not vaccinated. And uh, basically, Dr. Hinshaw going on the record to other doctors a few days ago before it was pulled down off YouTube. We've grabbed it thanks to a couple of audience members, as a matter of fact, that passed it along. Plus, our team was working to make sure we secured that. She basically says, this is because Alberta fully opened for business on July 1st. That's basically the reason. Whoops. And so people are sitting here going, uh-huh. And uh, there was a number of tweets that didn't age well, and uh, including Brett Wilson, you know, W. Brett Wilson, the orphan well daddy, the guy out of Calgary that basically said that if you're if you're talking shit about Alberta opening up on July 1st, you're never welcome in the province ever again. People were wondering who made him the lieutenant governor. But uh, he went on to say the pan, you know, he's going the pandemic's over. Alberta's pro open permanently. And people are going, yeah, that that didn't age very well. We'll talk to Dr. Melanie Thomas, uh, a professor of political science out of the University of Calgary, specifically about John Ibbotson's piece in the Globe and Mail talking about the People's Party of Canada, the PPC. Should it be taken seriously? You know, its leader, Maxime Bernier, was not welcomed 
to the federal debates, much to the chagrin of the, as they say, according to some polling, approximately asterisk, 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 7% of voters, according to Nanos Research and other polling, that intend to cast a ballot for the PPC. Almost one in 10. Or if I were to be a little more self-serving, I might say just over one in 20. 7% though, not negligible. Inspired by Tanya, a real talker on Monday when we brought you Positive Reflections presented by Kubi Energy. Tanya said, I'm up for, and I think real talkers would be up for Positive Reflections every single morning. Inspired by our dear friend, by now I can say the iconic Julie Rohr, uh, the friend of this show. She's on our editorial board. You know, she's been on the show a couple of times at least, um, is now in palliative care and is living out loud for all to see in some of the most brave openness uh, that I've ever witnessed uh, in, in my time on planet Earth. And I'm seeing hundreds and even thousands of people saying it, too. We thought Tanya's idea was amazing. And so positive reflections. We're kicking off the show with it every morning. I do happen to know Julie's husband told me. Uh, And friends of hers told me yesterday that she started her morning yesterday watching us live for the positive reflections. And so, Julie, if you're watching again today, these are are for you. Got an email yesterday from Stacy Levitt Wright. Uh, Stacy's the CEO at the Jewish Federation of Edmonton. She said at a time when the entitled in our society seemed to be drowning out the rest of our voices. I want to thank Real Talk for having Julie on the show. And my goodness to thank Julie for her willingness to give of her precious energy and spirit right now. Stacy nailed it. She says, you hit the bullseye with your question, Ryan, where do you get the strength? And Stacy says, in the midst of our high holidays, when we're wrestling with God and taking spiritual stock, Julie's reply reaffirmed my faith. It was a powerful moment. And oddly enough, says Stacy, before I'd listened to the show, I was at synagogue. And when the prayer for those in need of healing came up, Julie popped into my mind immediately. We are all part of something greater than ourselves. Indeed. That from Stacy. Stephanie wrote in to say, I don't know Julie, but I saw her on your show and I've been following her ever since. And the thing that impacts me is the brutal honesty that she approaches life with honesty, compassion, strength, courage, love, And seeing these reactions and responses to life from Julie Rohr has given me hope and humanity. I don't know her, but her example and the soft expression of truth that she embodies has allowed me to release anger and hopelessness to be replaced by quiet assurance that we will be okay. Julie needs to know that her life is her message and it has been received. Wow. Fatima wrote in and said, Julie sent my sisters and I a group message, a private message on Twitter in the spring. And she had some incredibly kind words for us during a very difficult time for hijabi women in Alberta. And even while going through an incredibly challenging time herself, she took the time to reach out and express her solidarity, her appreciation, her love for us in our community. I hold Julie and her family in my heart and my prayers daily. I don't have the honor of knowing her in real life, but her beautiful smile, her, her gorgeous spirit shine through my tiny screen every time we interact on that little app on Twitter. And I know for an absolute fact that I'm a better person for, quote, knowing her. Julie is all that is good, and she deserves all that is good. And she's an incredible reminder there's still so much good in the world. We all need to remember that now more than ever. She deserves every bit of love coming her way right now. Thanks for doing these Julie Roar Appreciation Days on Real Talk. That from Fatima. It was my honor uh, yesterday to officially announce the establishment of the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship. Uh, And we'll be 
announcing details in the weeks and months to come. We've been working with Julie on it behind the scenes. She's established the parameters for this scholarship, which will award at inception in its first year uh, a minimum of $5,000 to one student who has lost a parent to cancer. And we'll have further details on the application process and how you can get involved I was also able to announce that it's time for you real talkers to mark your calendars on Thursday, June 23rd of 2022. We're going to host the first annual real talk golf tournament at the ranch golf and country club. It's going to be an absolute blast. And the proceeds, of course, will benefit that real talk. Julie Rohr scholarship. I wanted to let you know this morning that my good friend, uh, Slavo Chech, a, a, a talented uh, and just an absolutely wildly talented sculptor, is actually auctioning off a piece uh, that was inspired by Julie, created with love and admiration for Julie Rohr. The small sculpture auctioned off today, 100% of proceeds will go to the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship. The auction is now open. It'll close at 6 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. So depending on when you listen to the podcast, it may still be up for grabs. You can find him on Twitter at Slav underscore Metallurges. And of course, I've retweeted it already, and I'll be keeping an eye on it through the day. Last I checked, although it was before our production meeting, before our coffees, uh, and before the whole stunner debate. So I don't know what action has happened since, but it was already at $2,000. And so I'm expecting this to grow through the day. It was at two grand by like 730 in the morning. So we expect that to grow over the next nine and a half hours or so. And uh, that will be the first official. I mean, our show made a financial commitment to the scholarship and then Slav's auction will be number two. And uh, we're going to find a way. I know that some of you have already reached out. I appreciate it. Um, to golf at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you can indicate your interest in the tournament. Volunteers, we're going to need sponsors. And of course, we'll be looking for golfers. Um, you know, you've asked how you can make a donation. We're still working with our team uh, behind the scenes to make sure that it's set up properly, that it's set up with integrity. The scholarship will be uh, awarded by our editorial board, not by me. We want to do this right. And Julie's family has uh, indicated a willingness and a desire to participate with us in the years to come as we continue uh, to honor this woman's incredible legacy, cherishing every single moment that we have with her here. You can send in your positive reflections on Julie Rohr to talk at ryanjesperson.com in the subject line. You can either simply note it's for Julie Rohr, R-O-H-R, or make a note that it's for positive reflections. We were really excited yesterday to tell you about this amazing event that's coming to Edmonton a little bit later on this month. It's presented by Explore Edmonton. This is the first time it's ever been in Alberta's capital city. And to be quite honest with you, it might be the very last time Rugby Sevens the city of Edmonton landed this one stop, this kind of one-off stop this year. It was supposed to go to the UK, but but it's just, it's not happening. And that, that means that we are privy to a sport that is celebrated around the world for the enthusiasm of the fans, for the speed of the game, and for the unique nature of how it all plays out. It's seven players playing seven-minute halves. It's fast, it's fun. And it's for everybody with its dynamic, high-octane style. It's a festival atmosphere, as you can tell. It'll be a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's coming to Edmonton September 25th and 26th. You can learn more about it and buy your tickets at Canada Sevens.com. 
Canada7s.com, sponsored by Explore Edmonton at Canada7s.com. We also wanted to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is celebrating a tradition that's gone for more than 40 years. The Alberta Beef Roundup is back. It's uh, kicked off just about a week ago and it runs through till September 23rd. You got just over a week left. This is your opportunity to line up an entire hip of fresh Alberta beef and then tell the in-store butcher the team at Friesen Brothers exactly how you want it done. So whether you want more steaks or maybe you want a big roast, maybe you want a whole bunch of ground round, whatever it is, stewing cubes, they'll do it made to order, packaged, ready for your family's freezer. This has been a tradition that I know in the 16 communities where Friesen Brothers operates, people get excited. They look for it every fall. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also want to mention that we will be celebrating the life of legendary comedian Norm Macdonald on the show today. And you can feel free to send us your thoughts to our official hashtag Real Talk RJ or you can leave your thoughts in the chat and uh, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles will keep an eye on that. As mentioned, Monday, Canadians will go to the polls. That's five days from now. The rumblings are a minority government again. Who will it be? The liberals, the conservatives. What role will the NDP play? We'll talk about the PPC later. What about the Greens? A lot. A lot of storylines for an election that many people are assisting, uh, insisting is, is really not about much. Uh, Treaty 8 Grand Chief Arter Noski joined us on the show last week and talked about a letter he signed his name to that called out essentially all candidates, all parties for not taking indigenous election issues seriously, for not taking reconciliation seriously. It's our pleasure to welcome to the program a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. He's an associate professor at the University of Manitoba and an Anishinaabe writer at Nigan Sinclair. Thank you so much for making time for us. A good morning to you and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, nice to be here. So bonjour to you from Treaty 1 territory over here in Manitoba. Love it. Hey, can I, can I ask you a, a less than serious question? Uh, we were talking about our friends in Manitoba about 20 minutes ago on the show about how words can differ, the meaning of words across the country. And I, I married a girl from Manitoba, and in her understanding, the word stunner is not a compliment. The word stunner is somebody that can't figure things out very easily. In in my world, my understanding, a stunner is like a 10 out of 10, somebody that really catches your attention. Uh, you're in Manitoba right now. Stunner, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with you on the stunner, but I, I certainly know in the rural areas. Uh, did she grow up in Winnipeg? Or? You know what? She grew just out just outside in Stony Mountain. Okay, Stony Mountain. All right. So yeah. rural area. Uh, in rural areas, all bets are off. Yeah, that is a very fair statement, Nigon. All right, I, I want to get serious. I want to respect your time here, and, and we're grateful to have you here. Uh, as mentioned, Grand Chief Noski joined me on the show and essentially said, uh, if I can paraphrase, you know, based on where the national attitudes were and the national focus through June and July, these 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 horrifying numbers being released across the country, these children uh, essentially being re- recovered, at least back in public dialogue, that, that he was really appalled that federal election platforms haven't reflected those same priorities. Are you seeing things along the same lines or do you see it a bit differently? Well, not to disagree with your previous guest, but that's not actually true. Uh, the, the federal parties are more engaged with Indigenous issues than any time in history. Uh, the Conservatives, as just an example, have 14 pages in their platform and they've never had that kind of amount before. But the bar is very low. 
So when you've never talked about something and then you start to talk about something, uh, it looks remarkable. And so uh, the certainly it's not impressive and it's not particularly uh, um, uh, thorough or it's quite one dimensional, especially when it comes to the conservatives and frankly, the liberals. But, you know, it, it is something they are more involved. In. And the problem really is, is that Canadians uh, and therefore the media who the media are serving don't ask the questions. So if we're not asking the questions about the party platforms, because every single party platform has uh, ideas about reconciliation in it. But the fact is that that kind of readership doesn't live in Toronto, doesn't grow in, in Montreal. So the major media companies, frankly, in those urban centers just don't ask the questions because frankly, Canadians don't care in those areas. Uh, out here on the prairies in Manitoba, uh, Indigenous issues are a daily issue. We've been running it on the Winnipeg Free Press almost daily. Uh, issues involving Indigenous peoples in this federal election. Uh, every single day we're, we're running multiple stories in the Winnipeg Free Press. And frankly, most of the, uh, I, th I think about the, uh, the, the newspapers in Regina and the newspapers, particularly in Edmonton, I haven't seen the Calgary Herald's uh, uh, lineup, but certainly out here, out here on the prairies, it is, an, it is a national issue, just that people aren't talking about it. And frankly, Canadians do want to hear about it, but I think they want to hear about it in such a way, you know, if we, if you look at the polling of the Abacus uh, data firm that uh, came out just before the election was called, uh, when they asked Canadians what is the top issues uh, in the top five was reconciliation. I mean, Canadians are interested in that issue. And so I think federal leaders would be better served to talk about that on the campaign trail more. You wrote uh, in the Winnipeg Free Press back on September 6th, the column uh, asserting that indigenous issues will be impossible to ignore in the federal leaders debates. Were you satisfied with what you saw in those debates in that context? No, it was exactly as predicted. I mean, uh, here's what you saw in the federal leaders debate. You saw absolutely egregious, incorrect statements. Uh, those were by, uh, fr frankly, most of the leaders, but particularly Aaron O'Toole, who has no idea, apparently, what the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is. It's not, it won't inhibit partnerships whatsoever for First Nations. In fact, it will encourage because First Nations will not be hampered by the Indian Act, by the control of the federal government. And so the, the idea that Aaron O'Toole just simply doesn't understand the United Nations Declaration is a problem. Uh, the fact that Justin Trudeau wants to frame reconciliation as boil water advisories, which it's not, it's, you know, boil water advisories is treating people like human beings. So that's not reconciliation. And the fact that Jagmeet Singh, who probably has the most progressive platform when it comes to Indigenous issues, although it's quite easy to promise the sky when you have never uh, formed government. Uh, the Jagmeet Singh is far more interested in trying to take uh, inches and uh, you know, pounds of flesh off Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, because he's trying to get that middle space. He's trying to gain that middle space votes. But unfortunately, that means that you don't talk about Indigenous issues all that much. And when you do, it's very circumstantial discussion saying things like, well, we're going to fix all the boil water advisories, but not talking about how you're going to do it. How would you how would you characterize like we've, we've had different conversations, including with, you know, indigenous leaders, engineers in, in specific First Nations, in specific communities that have seen uh, water conditions improved again, still we're talking about basic infrastructure, but there has been an insistence that, you know, in a couple circumstances, including interviews here on Real Talk, that, hey, the federal government's not done that bad of a job when it comes to the boil water advisories. As an example, they have made progress. They have taken steps forward. I want to 
you know, ask you for an honest assessment of how you would say this government has has performed, let's say since 2015, when Justin Trudeau first became prime minister. So the last six years or so. Well, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record here, so uh, you'll have to forgive me. But this federal government, uh, particularly the liberals, but the recent minority liberals have been the most progressive in history and have achieved the most of a Canadian government in history when it's come to uh, a whole bunch of issues, boil water advisories being one, uh, putting forth the murder of missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry, uh, putting forth you know some major decisions, uh, putting forth like uh, downloading First Nations child welfare onto First Nations, C92, uh, supporting Indigenous languages, which is a uh, frankly a terrible bill. It won't save any languages, but it does involve some funding for First Nations to support their language development. Okay. So what I've said is this, this federal government is the most progressive in history when it comes to indigenous peoples, but it's a very low bar. As I said before, with the federal parties, uh, when you've never done anything or all you've done is violence, when you've reduced the violence, there's still violence. Like if I say, I'm not going to punch you in the living room, but I'm going to punch you in the dining room. It's the same violence. Uh, all you've said is that you're going to certain areas of the country, remove that violence, like in child welfare, for example, we're going to uh, download that onto the First Nations. But frankly, there is no funding attached to that. And First Nations are now fighting with the provinces and trying to uh, take money from their cold, cold hands and uh, to be able to administer and deliver and take care of their own children. So, I mean, we've still got the same problems as before. All that we've done is we've seen a little bit of progression with this past federal government. But do you want to know why that is? It's certainly not because the Liberals are in a majority position. It's because they're in a minority position. So when the Liberals are in a minority position and they have the NDP holding the balance of power, as I mentioned before, the NDP is the most progressive government when it comes to Indigenous rights, when it comes to uh, land redress, or land language revitalization, then what you have is you have a uh, socially responsible when it comes to Indigenous peoples, federal government. That's the best case scenario. And that may be what we're looking at uh, coming this Monday. I, uh, Nigan, we, we talked to Tim Powers yesterday, a political strategist, and and uh, he was with Abacus, by the way, and he, he was saying to us that essentially echoing what you asserted that and it feels harsh to put it this way we've had experts on the show saying the same thing about afghanistan and foreign policy when it comes to a federal election that quite frankly people don't care and it might not mean that people don't care about the human beings or they don't care about the story but it may not inform or direct their vote uh to be clear but i mean we had people indigenous and non-indigenous people weeping when the the announcement of the of the 215 unmarked graves was made, when Kawasis First Nation confirmed 751, when First Nations across or former residential school sites across Canada were were proven uh, to be essentially mass graves for children whose deaths in many circumstances were undocumented. That's just one reason that Canadians felt felt called to speak out and to swap out their Canadian flags for orange silks and to 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 say no to celebrating Canada Day. And as if I need to tell you all of this. So so can you explain to me, I mean, can, can you provide some real talk, some insight onto how six or eight or 10 weeks later we have political commentators, including yourself, coming on the show and saying, yeah, but these aren't issues people really care about in a federal election. Like what's how, what gives? Well, uh, just to add to your numbers there, I mean, the numbers are now over 5000 yeah. in terms of. In terms of children's deaths at the schools, if you add in the TRC numbers plus the recent 
uh, findings with the ground penetrating radar. So uh, over 5,000, that's egregious. And if it was any other people within the country, absolutely anyone, uh, there would be national outcries. There would be national uh, uh, holidays that would be immediately, uh, there would be no debate about whether we should fund the search for children. Uh, but yet what you see at a national debate is the debate around water. And should we give them water? I don't know. What do you think? And I mean, that is exactly the kind of characteristic within Canadian society, Canadian culture, which is it's built off de the dehumanization of Indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples are still today in 2021 not seen as human beings. And I'll give you an example because of that. If you have a national leaders debate in which you're saying egregiously incorrect things, offensive things, if the Bloc Québécois leader comes out and says, I'm far more worried about Quebec's reputation than I am worried about the murder of Joyce Eshquan in a Quebec hospital. That was how he answered that question. He says, I'm far more worried about the ways in which uh, racism is called a Quebec problem than I am, you know, he had a real moment there to give empathy to the family, to express his condolences, to say how much he uh, felt sorry for that to happen in Quebec. But he didn't. He said, I'm far more worried about Quebec's reputation. That is exactly the case here in which when Canadian society, Canadian culture is built on the idea of the dehumanization of Indigenous peoples, the idea, for example, that the land was taken justly through treaty, which it wasn't, it was stolen. Uh, the idea that Indigenous rights are in the country, which they aren't. They're in C uh, sorry, Section 35 of the Constitution, but those are undefined, so we keep having to march to the Supreme Court. And then you have premiers like Jason Kenney and others who pass legislation that frankly just ignores Indigenous rights or squashes them by saying that if you go and you step on and you, you talk about your rights on public infrastructure, we're going to arrest you outright. So we still live in a country in which Indigenous peoples are seen as second-tier citizens. Indigenous leaders are not on par with Canadian leaders. That's, you know, the mere fact that there was none in the debate. The only person that was involved in the debate was uh, Melissa Ridgen from APTN, who when she came in was almost immediately chided by the Prime Minister saying she wasn't aggressive enough or optimistic enough. She was too cynical. Like, I think Indigenous peoples have a right to be cynical after 150 years of violence. And so the idea that that Canadian prime ministers would uh, mansplain to a Indigenous woman of what progressivism is, is just insulting. But it's, it's the endemic to Canadian culture itself. Within Canadian culture is the idea that Indigenous peoples don't matter. And so when you see a story, for example, like unmarked graves and children, Canadians feel a lot of guilt, a lot of white guilt, a lot of uh, feelings of sadness, but they don't want change. So that's the issue of privilege. So that if privilege is up for debate, meaning that Canadians have to change their way of life, then suddenly we don't want to talk about Indigenous peoples anymore. But if we want to uh, deal with the issues of sadness and feeling bad about violence and, you know, putting flags at half-mast or saying some territorial acknowledgements, then Canadians are happy to do so. But as long as nothing changes. I, uh, <laughs> you know... First of all, can I just say, I, I don't know, I shouldn't do this mid-interview. I really appreciate how you roll. I really appreciate how you communicate. And and to have a professor that's also a columnist is uh, an amazing opportunity. And I'm really grateful for your time this morning. You talked about how, you, you know, you say that you're seeing platforms reflect an awareness of indigenous issues, but the bar's been set so low. So, yeah, there's some stuff in there. But what would you like to see that you don't? I mean, where would you like to see? I hate to put it this way, but forgive me. Where'd you like to see a political party kind of stick its neck out a little bit and do something that you might categorize as really meaningful? I would love to see like competency. 
<laughs> and let me give you an example of what that looks like or, or a lack of hypocrisy. And here's what I explained by that. So the Conservative Party platform, I think, actually made some very big inroads this election. And like, for example, one of the things that the Conservatives are promising is a commitment to on the land learning for people who are going through addictions, particularly those who are. And we know, you know, Indigenous communities know that when you bring a person into uh, the into the community, onto the land, you work with elders, you work with the community. If it's community led, it, and the number one thing that we will do is teach people the language. We will uh, take people to uh, understand where they come from, who they are, which is connected to the land, their clan, for example. Uh, all of those things are fantastic. And so for the Conservatives to adopt that in their platforms is incredibly encouraging because it tells you that, that there is some Indigenous peoples within that party that are talking to them and saying, okay, so let's have some on-the-land learning for those people who are going through addictions. But then on the following page, they say we're going to ramp up economic production, mining pipelines on First Nations. Like, do we all realize that there's no on-the-land learning if there's no land? Like, do we realize that? Or the idea that, that First Nations are not interested in economic development that will ruin their home territories or ruin anyone's territory for that matter, particularly when it comes to water. That's what I Don't Know More was about. Uh, th tens of thousands of Indigenous young people marching peacefully through the streets into malls saying, we would rather not have water protections be removed and First Nations territory be stolen further. That's what what Suetin situation was about. That's what Burnt Church is about. You know, all of those issues that go into with land. I would just love to see a Canadian political party know what they're talking about and have competency, have a lack of hypocrisy in their policies, because you can't say one thing and then say the other. And, and getting back to the Liberals for just a minute, um, C-15 is a good idea, uh, implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but it's being done in such a porous way, meaning that you're expecting Canadian law to, to adjust itself to the United Nations Declaration. Well, you know what will happen there is that uh, because Indigenous rights have never been included within the Canadian Constitution or Canada's laws periods, like, for example, we have this facade idea that the Crown owns the land when it doesn't. Uh, it was stolen from Indigenous nations. So we've got to deal with that issue first. There will be no conversation on Indigenous rights because then Indigenous rights will be put into a framework where the Crown will always have dictation over Indigenous rights. And that's not Indigenous rights anymore. That's simply Canadians telling Indigenous peoples how to live. I, I have to imagine you've obviously been paying keen attention to this Mi'kmaq, uh, the lobster fishing boat that was surrounded just yesterday by fisheries officers and have, you know, their traps have been seized. And it's been a, it's been kind of an ongoing saga. And there are many different angles on it. You can talk about indigenous investment in the industry and, and a whole bunch of things, law enforcement, community sentiment around it. But attempting yesterday to exercise their treaty rights under the peace and friendship uh, treaties. Where's your head at on that one in particular? You just noted a few other circumstances, Wet'suwet'en and others. Well, let's be clear here. The problem with the lobster fishing on the eastern coast is Canadian fishermen who overfish and particularly corporate partnerships with those fisher fishermen. I mean, the fact is that who is the ones who are breaking the laws, who are exceeding the catches? It is Canadian fishermen who do that. And Mi'kmaq who are fishing so-called out of season, well, there is no season when it comes to Indigenous rights. And the fact is that the Mi'kmaq have been in stewardship of those lobsters for thousands of years. Do you think that they're the ones who are interested in overfishing? Absolutely not. Those who are invested in profit and exploitation are interested most in that. And I think the Canadian government will be best served to instead of penalizing one or two fishermen or frankly, breaking the law by doing so, then 
the Canadian government would be better served to start to police Canadian fishermen who are the real problems in the first place. Those are the ones who are, when challenged, go and burn down uh, the Mi'kmaq uh, harvest, harvesting buildings. They go down and circle the boats and attack them on the water. They go to try, you know, they don't even know what Indigenous rights are, never mind the fact that the idea that, that the, uh, you know, let's get some education for these uh, families and communities in which they don't understand that it is the Mi'kmaq who are the stewards of that lobster and will continue to do so into the future. And perhaps Canada can learn a, t- a thing or two from that particular situation. It certainly has been going since I was a kid, that particular issue involving Indigenous rights. And it's really a problem because uh, Section 35 of the Constitution is undefined. Canada has promised to define it or at least uh, work with Indigenous communities to define it. That's what really should happen with Indigenous people should be telling Canada their rights, not Canada dictating to Indigenous. That's not rights, as I mentioned before. So Indigenous peoples should be working with uh, the Canadian lawmakers to define what Indigenous rights are. And hopefully with C-15, that may may or may not happen. But the fact is, because there's undefined, you get all of these battles, these marches of the Supreme Court and billions of taxpayer dollars wasted because, frankly, Canada doesn't have the courage to uh, to work to do what is the work necessary to define those rights. Uh, Negan, in closing, uh, and I'm not necessarily, I guess, drawing a, a straight line between these two stories, but, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I think Canadians took notice when a member of parliament out of Nunavut, Mumalak Kakak, stated that she was not going to seek re-election. She, you know, paraphrasing, she she said she didn't feel like there was a place for her in Ottawa. She didn't feel like her, her positions or, or concerns or her mandate had really been taken seriously. Um, I would imagine that she, she obviously has a very bright future it, applying her skill and talent and advocacy in other areas, but she, it won't be on parliament hill at least not this next election cycle and then uh the co-chair of the indigenous people's commission of the liberal party Susie keese resigns um after her claim to indigenous ancestry was called into question these are just two stories uh where it brings us back to representation which is something you touched on on earlier um you know as, as you sort through stories like that what's the message you want to put out to people including indigenous people in canada uh, there has never been a time in Canadian history where Indigenous leadership has existed in Parliament. And here's what I mean by that. Of course, there have been Indigenous peoples in political parties, Canadian political parties. But those Indigenous peoples cannot and will never not be able to uh, advocate for Indigenous interests while working in the NDP, the Liberals, the Conservatives, the Greens, the People's Party, the Bloc, whoever it might be, because those are Canadian political parties. And so therefore, they're at the behest of the Crown, they're at the behest of Canada's interest and ultimately the Canadians who vote for them. The only time in history we have ever seen an Indigenous person who represents themselves and therefore their community is Jody Wilson-Raybould. And I'm not saying that that was a model that works because uh, certainly we see that when you're an independent MP you can't get stuff done. But I think it's notable that the one Indigenous person we're talking about in this entire Canadian federal election is Jody Wilson-Raybould who seems to be uh, the winner of this election so far. (laughs) If you're to name a winner, it would be that uh, her book came out yesterday. Uh, She certainly has gone back to the national headlines and people are looking to her as what is it that Indigenous peoples are seeking and and what she is saying in her, if you read her book, is honesty, ethics, responsibility. 
And that's a pretty strong message that Indigenous peoples share across the country. Regardless of what you think of Jody Wilson-Raybould, the bottom line of it is, is that she is saying things that Indigenous peoples have been saying for decades, which is that the Canadian government is an unethical place. It's a place in which uh, their Indigenous peoples are not welcome there. And then particularly, it's not changing anytime soon. And when it does change, it often changes to benefit the same Canada that's committed the violences in the first place. So that should be like a call to action for every Canadian to go like, we should change Parliament. And here's an idea if you want some hope at the end here. Uh, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples proposed a radical idea in 1996. They said, we should have an Indigenous Parliament. And if you want to solve the issue of consultation, if you want to solve the issue of land redress, if you want to solve the issue of how do Indigenous peoples find partnerships within the country, uh, an Indigenous Parliament seems to be the way to go. And if you want to replace an absolutely useless waste of time institution, it's called the Senate. Yeah. And so... You, you could easily replace that Senate with an Indigenous Parliament. You could have it in a similar body and role within the Constitution. And we could also have an Indigenous Parliament in which, uh, and I, I could imagine all of the different special interest groups in Quebec and so on throughout the country that would just, you know, probably spin, spin around and do cartwheels and anger over this one. But that Indigenous peoples would be partners in Confederation and they would be real partners. They would have say, they would have the, the role and the responsibility so that therefore when decisions are made, even on pipelines, mines, highways, uh, whatever the policy may be, that Indigenous peoples would be involved on the front end of the decisions and not on the back end, because when they're involved on the, on the back end, then that's not consultation. That's just how much do I pay you off? I was, I was I'm so... Uh excited that you, I'm grateful that you, you brought up the Senate, our uh, our research and strategy partner here on the show, Y Station, their chief strategist, Chris Henderson, a uh, guy knows his way around politics. He, that, that's his idea. And he and he we were talking about that about a month ago. He says, why not? I mean, people talk about abolishing the Senate anyway. Why not make it an indigenous Senate and force cooperation and collaboration between the House and the Senate? And I think I mean, <laughs> To go off on a tiny little bit of a tangent, a Canadian actor, Sandra Oh, she's in this new uh, show on it's called The Chair, and she's the first woman of color that that heads the education department at an Ivy League university. And it's and it's, you know, you're, you're sort of seeing as the plot develops all these old school tenured department heads and, and, and tenured professors feeling uncomfortable at the changes that are happening. More people of color around the table, more women around the table. It was making me honestly, I'm watching this show thinking of Henderson's discussion around the Senate and reforming the Senate oh. if you want to use a supercharged prairie word uh, but yeah, I, I mean I'm, I'm a department head so I, I identify a lot with that show yeah and on top of that you know this is something that the uh, people always want to talk about how we've been commissioned to death or inquired to death or recommended to death uh, the fact is that this has been a recommendation going all the way back to 1996 we're now going on 25 years of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the most uh, effective, inclusive, and uh, thorough study of Indigenous peoples in Canadian history. The TRC, and you know, like all, all cards on the table, my father was the head of the TRC. So, you know, I have a lot of space to talk about the TRC, but the TRC ain't got nothing 
on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. Same thing with the Murder, Missing, Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. Just simply, they are like chapters of that Royal Commission. And certainly those two inquiries and, and, uh, and commissions need to be listened to. And I think people have listened more to those than they have with the Royal Commission. But the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, everybody should, it should be mandatory reading for every university student because it is the most vibrant and important document really when it comes to Indigenous peoples in history. Negan, can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and your perspective. I'm already looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, Miigwech. I just want to apologize too about last week. I was supposed oh. to be on last week, but I screwed up with the uh, with the change of time. So I just want to apologize I, to all the listeners and viewers. So. Can, can I be honest with you about something? Every once in a while, you, you, you get a guest on a show that is just so good and uh, spitting fire in the most positive way. And as a moderator, it would have been a shame with no disrespect to any other guest if I would have had to split time with you and somebody else. I'm glad we were able to go one on one today. And so it all worked out the way that it should and it's great to have you here on the show yeah miigwech thanks so much and uh, take care man yeah you got it that's nigan sinclair uh an anishinaabe writer a columnist for the winnipeg free press and associate professor at the university of manitoba a department head at the university of manitoba his dad murray sinclair i mean keep, keep in mind as well i mean it's pretty significant he's talking about the senate i mean his dad was a former senator so you know it's uh i think that's a neat idea obviously it would be I, how many Canadians do you think seriously would step forward and say, no, you've, you've like they would fight to protect and keep the Senate as it is? <laughs> like, the Senate? What's the Senate? Be, it's like Bueller. Bueller. What, what do they do? It, it, you know, you have Canadians that are either kind of roll their eyes at it based on the partisan element of it. And now the trend prompted by Justin Trudeau and, and whether or not you believe it to be a serious one or a meaningful one. The trend is for senators to sit independently. Um, you know, as as is even the case in Alberta, some of the senators that we've talked to, Doug Black and Paula Simons and and uh, and others, uh, you know, having Patty on the show as well. Benson was was um, amazing. But we've we've um, heard from a lot of people that, that don't necessarily uh, when Patty, Patty Labacan Benson was on most recently, people were saying I got a couple emails. Really? Are, are, like, are we really to believe that these senators are truly independent? And I would try to reply to as many emails as I can. And I would say, well. I mean, just because you're independent, I mean, that sort of defines, I think, how you perceive your mandate or how you approach issues. That doesn't necessarily mean that people might not be able to pin you down on the political spectrum. Doug Black is an independent. I quite like Doug. Uh, I quite like Senator Black, I should say. He's an independent senator. He's very conservative. That's not a secret. Just like Paula Simons is, is a little probably a bit more of a centrist or, or some might even say maybe she leans a little bit left on some issues. But at the same time and in Alberta, by the way, when you're describing somebody that leans a little bit left, they'd still be a right winger anywhere else in Canada. So myself included. So are things, <laughs> you know what I mean? My buddies in Vancouver all think that I am an absolute. They're, they're like, you are a right winger. I'm like a right winger. Like, what you, I said, everybody, you know, not everybody in Alberta, the, the reasonable people, the people that join us here on Real Talk know what's up. But like the premier would have you believe I'm a communist. So it just depends. <laughs> you got to consider the source. We're going to get to Melanie Thomas in just a second. Uh, we're going to talk about Norm McDonald today. We're going to talk about uh, Alberta's um, vaccine not passports uh we're going to talk about alberta's print them off yourselves cut them up with craft scissors and fold them up into your wallet dot matrix print shop make your own forge your own have your fun with our proof of vaccination cards not sure how we're going to use that but first i want to remind you about our friends at eden landscaping whatever your vision they will execute it with precise attention to detail 
and you go, yeah, mine's a bit challenging. Doesn't matter. They love it. They thrive on problem solving. That's what Mike tells me all the time at Eden Landscaping. So whether it's edible garden boxes, that's a real trend right now. More and more people are converting square footage in their outdoor spaces to these edible garden boxes. Just beautiful excavation. You need it. You want to remove existing greenery or level the ground or deal with a maybe a drainage issue. Maybe you're looking to hardscape something with a beautiful stone installation, concrete, exposed aggregate. Retaining walls might be on your list. They have done it all water features bridges boulders i feel like mike's gonna probably want me to stop talking about boulders so much it sounds like a lot of work sounds like a lot of work i love hardscape it's like hardscape so badass yeah it's like what you could do when you're like looking in the mirror at the gym doing bicep curls hardscape 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 back to eden landscaping more than 20 years earning the return business of their clients and customers their partners and their friends you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca can we talk about poop for a real quick second anybody mind our friends at grand dog essentials on their website granddog.ca have a brand new blog post what your dog's poop is telling you i mean if your dog's poop is actually telling you something if it's talking to you seek help but as you're cleaning up your yard the team at grand dog's like oh my gosh Seriously, you can learn things about your dog's health and digestive system. And and of course, a big part of that is what your dog is eating. Grand Dog has a team of nutritionists and from puppies all the way through to the senior dogs. They've got great tips on how their quality raw food could improve the quality of life for your four or a three legged family and maybe even two legged family member. I, I, I was a judge last night in the top 40 dogs of Edmonton. We had our judging event. I cannot reveal how that went the book will be coming out later this year just in time for the holidays but i can say there's a very strong contender there that is a two-legged canine and i like its chances but that's all i'm gonna say ranger's feelings are very hurt right now does ranger have five legs no (laughs) is this a dick joke no okay that he wasn't considered for the top 40 was he submitted no. Oh, so I know who should be feeling that. It's you. There's an application process. You think nepotism? You think he knows the judge, so he just gets in? Absolutely. You know how many people were hitting me up on my phone last night? The judges were all posting, hey, judging night. We're having a good time. You can follow him on Instagram at Top40Dogs of Yegg. People are like, hey, man, can you get my dog in there? No, man. But an amazing crop in class. Grand Dog's like, hey, not to, not to focus on the details, Ryan, but would you mind getting back to our ad read? I'd be happy to. They deliver to your door weekly, Edmonton, Red Deer and Area, Calgary, and 10% off your first time order at granddog.ca with the promo code REALTALK. All right, from uh, fun and laughter to, well, basically some of kind of the more despicable sides of the campaign trail and federal politics, to be quite honest with you, throwing gravel at candidates and protesting outside hospitals and and essentially talking about well full-blown racism according to some i mean let's have some real talk on the people's party of canada is the criticism fair where are you at should maxime bernier be in the leaders debates and and ultimately what is the future of this party look like that dr melanie thomas is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary and a good friend of this show. Uh, Doctor, it's nice to have you back. Thanks for making time for us this morning. 
Thanks for having me. You bet. I want to get specifically into talking about the PPC and we'll reference John Ibbotson's uh, column in the Globe and Mail. He says it's far outside the mainstream of Canadian politics, but it deserves representation. Before we get into that, though, and I understand this is a, a big, maybe way too general of a question, but what are a couple of your key observations about the campaign to this point and what's really caught your attention? So for me, it's felt like two different campaigns, one uh, that is very boring and kind of hard for me to get like really excited about yep. and one that's like profoundly alarming and one that makes me really worry about like the robustness of Canadian democracy. And so on one hand, like if I'm going to be really critical of, say, uh, the sitting prime minister, I think that they looked at the polls and thought, we look like we're in majority government territory. Um, it's the worst kept secret that we're going to call an election. And we think that it'll just be easy for us to go and get a majority government and then proceeded to run a campaign that suggested that they didn't actually plan for the fact that they would actually have to campaign too hard for it. Um, and then I, like, I also, if I'm looking at say Mr. O'Toole and the conservatives, I see a party that uh, like a brand new leader that doesn't have a whole lot of baggage, unlike the prime minister um, with Justin Trudeau and the liberals. And so, but I also see tension in how Mr. O'Toole has to talk about some issues. And like, for me, the, the key issue in this one is talking about guns and gun control, where like normally this doesn't come up in Canadian politics. Um, or if it does, it's very fringe. And so for this to be an issue that the party like puts on the table themselves just to like, say something and kind of hope that nobody else picks up and runs with it, which of course, like everybody is going to pick up and run with it because it's an easy stick to beat them with. Um, the cue there suggests to me that it's like, it's a little kind of like, we don't want to talk like if I'm, we're going to say that we're going to do some climate policy and if we're going to say that we're going to not do anything on abortion and that the leader is unlike Stephen Harper. Like, so Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Harper's position on abortion is exactly the same, except Mr. O'Toole is explicitly saying that he's pro-choice. Then it seems like the thing that we're going to give you is assault rifles <laughs> or like, we're going to ease the stuff on guns a little bit. And this is what brings me to the people's party. And so I think one of the, I have lots of observations about this, but I think for me, the action that I'm looking for, and I think the more challenge, most challenging conversation has to be within uh, conservative parties in Canada that want to be a big tent about how far they're going to extend their right flank. Uh, how far are they going to extend it into a concept that the social psychologists and political science, we borrow this concept to, how far are they going to extend into something called social dominance orientation? And so apologies to the psychologists if I am giving this concept short shrift in your literature, I probably am, sorry. Um, but the way that we've been asking about it in the 2019 Canadian election study, so I'm not part of that team, but like every Canadian political scientist that looks at this, I use this publicly available data set. It asks questions about whether or not people think it's a good thing for some groups to dominate others. And if they think that it's some groups are just naturally like that, there's this kind of like natural power hierarchy and that it's a really good thing that we have this reflected. And you can see that it's like a sanitized version of asking like, do you think that it's okay that like which groups, like what groups could we possibly mean? And this is where you get into this idea that it's predicated on race and it's predicated on things like gender and sex. Um, you can imagine that you would bring in like other axes of equity into that. Um, so it's not lost in me. Every time I see one of these protests, particularly focused towards liberal candidates and Justin Trudeau, but, but in other contexts too, that alongside um, 
trying to stop people from doing their democratic work of actually campaigning, you have instances of gross sexism and instances of racism almost at every single one of them. So every time I get a media request about this, uh, the one I got yesterday was, can we talk about how Justin Trudeau has like a bad attitude because of how he responded to like gross misogyny hurled at him, hurled at him about his wife? And I was like, can we talk about like what's happening at these events though? Like I'm not defending the prime minister. I think he really ought to be sanctioned for what he said um, two days ago. But like the bigger conversation we need to have is how far do we want to go legitimizing and saying that it is appropriate to have in our democratic political space, gross racism and gross misogyny, because this is cued into this whole idea of this social dominance orientation that some people think that it is good for some groups to dominate others, that it's good for some groups to have a higher position in the power hierarchy than others. And if that seems benign, you have to ask yourself which groups get to be high and which groups get to be subjugated in that. And like, it's a hop, skip and a jump. Like it's not even a thin veneer on how this like cues to white supremacy, how this cues to um, sexism and misogyny and to a whole host of other things. And I think most people, like I know this from my research, if we ask about that explicitly, most people know to not like publicly own to those attitudes because um, they're not good. They come with a whole host of problems and they're really hard to defend too. That's the other thing. Like most of them are actually like unjustifiable for sure. I, uh, this, this piece that John Ibbotson wrote in, in, uh, the globe just yesterday, the people's party far outside the mainstream of Canadian politics, but deserves representation. Uh, I, I want to read just a couple portions of it from his, his op-ed. He says, it's reasonable to suspect that many, if not most of the demonstrators harassing healthcare workers and patients outside hospitals will be casting a ballot for the PPC. He says, nonetheless, it's a legitimate political party that deserves representation. It reflects the views of almost 2 million voters suppressing the votes of these or the voices of these voters will only worsen their estrangement from the mainstream. He goes on to write, there could be plenty of reasons why so many people are drawn to the people's party. They've become resentful and untrusting over the loss of manufacturing jobs. Uh, they are stressed by the pandemic. Some of them resent the increasing number of non-European immigrants that caught a lot of people's attention. He says he says this is racist, but it is how they feel and they enjoy the self-empowerment that comes from a, uh, rejecting authority. Uh, Mr. Ibbotson wraps by saying Mr. Bernier, Maxime, seeks to be their voice. And if their voice is silenced, if they fail to break through in Parliament, just as Mr. Bernier was unfairly denied representation in the leaders debates last week, they will find another way to be heard, which is kind of an ominous way to end the op-ed effective writing i suppose but what do you make of of his argument i'm not persuaded by it for a number of reasons um there are many people who don't feel that their views towards politics or their values are really well represented by any of the political parties i actually think that this is a pretty common view uh if like how many like I would I would be willing to bet amongst your listeners that if you said, um, do you feel like you have a really good match with any of the political parties that get elected to the Canadian House of Commons? Most people would be like, no, like I like this about this one party and I like this about this other party, but other stuff that I really care about just kind of doesn't get talked about in politics. And we know this because the way that we talk about politics and the kind of policies that get forwarded tend to support the privileged. So like they're geared towards folks who are wealthier. Um, 
it privileges higher levels of education. It privileges people above a certain age. Like my students know this. They, it, I mean, I'm in Alberta at a university, so we haven't been getting particularly friendly post-secondary policy for anybody who's like 18 or 19 for quite some time. Um, but like, so this idea that like, your ideas might not be as adequately represented by electoral democracy as you might like is common, is common. So I find, so this raises the question for me, why do we pull out this particular part and say that this, like, especially the like resentment of non-European immigrants part um, as the descendant of a European immigrant, uh, I know exactly why people are saying this, right? So like, so ask yourself, why, why pluck out the, the People's Party as opposed to the Marxist-Leninists? Why pluck out the People's Party as opposed to the Greens, where the Greens have consistently pulled way higher than the seats that they've won? And like, we actually know that like a lot of Canadians actually care about the environment and climate change as an issue in ways that like far outstrip how it actually gets discussed in terms of electoral democracy. So why, why pluck out the People's Party and why say, oh, they're mad about manufacturing, they're mad about non-European immigrants? And the Canadian political scientist to me can't help but notice that people like me were seen to be the second best immigrants when we were doing like especially settler like agricultural policy on the Canadian prairies uh, the top were like white men from Britain uh, because they were Protestant if you look at the documents comparing like the historical record about how we did immigration policy in like Western Canada Western Australia places like that is the exact same sort of thing where you need the right kind of white guy to subjugate the land and like the racism built into that is like apparent um, the reason why I say we are second best is because we're Dutch so we're still Protestant we just don't have that British edge like literally that's what the policy is and so when I hear resentment at non-European immigrants I'm like oh Okay, so we're still basically queuing back to like, I, I, I think when people say that they don't really think about like the policy origins, but you can't not like, cause it cues back to that, right? It's this idea that the right kind of person to like settle the land that we have dispossessed from indigenous peoples is a like white, probably Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And like, and so why else would you oppose this if you weren't using, if there wasn't some upset at the idea that upsetting that racial order that's baked into the, like the history of the Canadian state um, was something that bothered you in part because of like fear of losing that social dominance in terms of like a racial hierarchy. Like it's gross. And I, I can imagine some, some listeners are like, no, but I think some of that too. And I don't like being confronted with the idea that maybe there's some like uh, racist ideas and how I'm thinking about this that I don't want to own to. It's just that I think people don't really connect like throwing around like non-European immigrants right now. You have to connect that back to like how, how this all started and like why that is even a thing and how we talk about this in Canadian politics in the first place. The only other thing I would add to this is that like there's lots of structural things about Canadian politics that make this seem more benign than it is. One of them is the Canadian census and how we've actually talked about race and ethnicity and the categories that we use and how that's changed over time. My colleague, Deborah Thompson at McGill has a really great research project looking at like how those categories have changed over time to kind of like reinforce and like mask some of the motivation um, to keep Canada a predominantly white country uh, or to like to talk about it that way without actually talking about it that way. Like a fascinating research um, 
my point with this is that I think somebody like Mr. Ibbotson should know better than to throw language like that around. And I would come back to my first point, which there's lots of ideas in Canadian politics that are um, not adequately represented in electoral politics. Uh, this one shouldn't be privileged. Right. I, uh, I I should point out and and I want to uh, shine some light on uh, an Edmontonian by the name of Bashir Muhammad. He, he tweeted about this yesterday and he noted that the line uh, where Ibbotson writes after some of them resent increasing number of non-European immigrants. This is racist, but is how they feel. That line was actually an edit uh, post publication. They added in. This is racist, but it's how they feel because of public outcry. And Bashir says, to be clear, being concerned about the increasing number of non-European immigrants is an extremely violent belief. It's a belief rooted in our country's history, one that has led to the systematic murder of people like me. And then he goes on to say the Christchurch shooters manifesto was titled The Great Replacement. 51 people died. The Quebec City shooter believed non-white immigration ruined his life. Six people died. The El Paso shooter published a manifesto making the same complaints. 23 people died. He says, I'm disappointed that these violent and racist beliefs are allowed to be legitimized in national publications. People across Canada have been talking about this for years, but it's clear that Canadian media media executives feel it's OK to publish this hatred. He, he says the article was revised to clarify this is racist. But he says, no, you can't throw away that line by saying that's just how they feel. The implications of the line is major and it speaks to rising radicalization in Canada, radicalization that will lead to violence that from Bashir Muhammad, you can follow him on Twitter. So I thought that that was that was worth pointing out. And, and you know, there are these sort of, you know, these these. I'm not going to say that John Ibbotson sitting here. I don't think that he intends to just be blowing a dog whistle the entire time. Um, but but I'm I am interested in his assertion that they deserve a voice. They deserve a spot in the debates. They deserve essentially a spot in parliament. And if they don't get it, they'll find another way to be heard. I'm not sure exactly what the hell that's supposed to mean uh, to me. It almost you know, if I'm the type of person and, and I will generalize and I will paint with a broad brush and I will say that if there's a PPC sign on your front lawn, you're either obtuse or despicable, quite frankly. And that's how I feel. I had a friend of mine talk to me the other day and, and he had indicated support for the PPC. And I said, why? And he goes, a ah, small government and free market and all these types of things. I was like, man, I think you misunderstand the flag that you're flying here. And I know there will be people that say I'm one about property rights or I'm one that believes in the sanctity of, you know, biblically defined marriage or something. And that's why I'm following this party. But I think that the party represents something bigger and more significant than that. And people should do their due diligence. But but columns like this kind of muddy the waters. Now, the question is, Professor, and I think you and I can probably agree here that if you continue to make efforts to suppress, I mean, we, we, we talked to Kalen Robertson the other day, you know, former rebel media activist. I mean, he worked, you know, big guy with like Breitbart and Tommy Robinson, all the I mean, Lauren Southern. I mean, this guy was among the alt right elite and he's pulled himself out of what he describes as radicalization. And he's now working to to get the word out and to talk to people about it. And the premise of his entire conversation was don't don't argue or throw facts in or try to try to demoralize or discourage or, or embarrass these types of people. He's like, that will lead to further alienation. Now, the question is, with individuals espousing these types of beliefs or with a political party, essentially building platforms around these types of beliefs, how should it be handled? So, again, I have to admit, I'm 
completely and spectacularly unpersuaded by the idea that if somebody holds views that are repugnant, um, that like the pretty please don't make us feel badly about it argument is one that for, for me just falls completely flat. Uh, I would say, though, that what we're finding is that this is a problem, I think, with how we talk about this stuff in Canada. Unlike the United States, um, Canadians are like closed minded and poorly equipped to talk about these issues. And I think for me, the best way to deal with this stuff is to understand that things like racism, sexism, um, white supremacy, uh, they are systemic they are systematic. They are literally baked into our political system. And so as a result, individual actions are going to be like wholly inadequate to address those. What we need to do is to actively engage in things like anti-racism to dismantle the systems. And so this requires like system level work. In the United States, what's interesting, and like I want to cue into like the thing that Mr. Ibbotson said before non-European immigrants, which was like the disappearance of manufacturing jobs in the U.S. I don't want to bring everything back to Donald Trump, but this is instructive where back in 2016, people worked really hard. There were lots of people who worked really hard to say this isn't about racism. Trump support is not about racism. Trump support is about economic anxiety. Uh, I can say that with confidence, I've got a lot of American political science colleagues that have looked at this extensively and the evidence is clear. It's not about economic anxiety. It's about racism. This isn't to say that economic anxiety doesn't exist. It does. How it manifested itself in those elections, though, uh, you can't say, oh, no, economic anxiety. It, it really does go back to like those ideas of social dominance and this idea that white folks should continue to dominate whatever society. At least the Americans can have a conversation about that in Canada. In Canada, this whole idea, like they're the white fragility, the kind of like people getting their backups, they're like, but it's not me as an individual, as if like that cuts the mustard, which it doesn't. This is a whole systemic kind of thing. But if we're looking at like, what else can we do? I would say what I find interesting about the, the individual that you mentioned in terms of like being like rehabilitated from something like rebel media we need to watch this with our kids. So when I start to study this stuff for ethics reasons, I start to get people at 18 when they are the age of majority. Uh, they're on social media getting exposed to the algorithms where people are actively engaging in these campaigns well before that. So the YouTube algorithms, the TikTok algorithms, and it starts particularly with young men with this idea that they don't like to feel bad if they say something ignorant and somebody corrects them. And sometimes that correction can be kind of harsh and then like nobody likes to feel bad. And so the algorithm catches them in such a way that it makes them, it sues them for thinking nobody should have made me feel bad about that the way that they did. And that's how, that's the thin end of the edge of the wedge. And then, then we go. This is why we've got good indicators that show that younger generations of folks, especially like yeah, younger cohorts of white men are more open to some of these attitudes than say generation Xers, people who were like Ferris Bueller, that's the thing. So in that sense, I think we need to pay a lot more closer attention to things that are like seemingly not political, but are being used for political means. The other thing I would note is that for political elites, I hold them accountable for this as well, because like there's a rumor that we heard going around that somebody told Mitt Romney back in 2012, that he could run a campaign similar to what Donald Trump did, hitting on racist resentment, really hitting that nerve, and that he could win against Barack Obama, particularly because Barack Obama was a black man. And Mitt Romney said, I am not going to campaign that way. Now, I don't know the veracity of this, but if I'm looking at 
the campaign techniques that are used, the language that gets used, especially in Alberta and other parts of the country. If I'm looking at how Maxime Bernier talks, like Bernier is about as subtle as a sledgehammer. But I see other politicians using this too, where they say, they say things where like, as a political scientist, I was like, where did your norm of self-restraint go? We did not used to do this. Like we, we used to expect that our politicians would conduct, conduct themselves better and that they wouldn't prime polarizing rhetoric. They wouldn't frame their partisan uh, opponents as enemies that are existential threats. Like the language that has been used is one that like, if people are open to this kind of thinking, you've got party leaders, like mainstream party leaders that are happy to hit those nerves and make keep them as raw as possible to keep people as angry as possible. Can we talk about how this gets used in, say, the equalization referendum that's coming up from our own provincial government? Like, this is the sort of thing where it's systemic as individual citizens the efforts that we can engage in our own daily lives to upend this is pretty minimal, but I still will actually want to like hold individuals accountable. And those are people who are in positions of power who ought to know better and are acting like they don't. Hmm. Um, I'm grateful for your time. I want, I want to circle back on something because I, I just checked in on our live chat and I, I saw some people, um, th- they took issue with your assertion. Uh, it was a quick and brief one, but your assertion that you thought that Justin Trudeau should be sanctioned for his comment to that, the, the, uh, what do I say? The demonstrator that made a disparaging yeah. remark about his wife. And unless I missed something, are you referring to when he said, shouldn't you be protesting outside a hospital somewhere? I think our primary health care workers and frontline health care deserve better from our prime minister. And I will stand by saying that that like I can understand uh, saying something colorful in that context when gross misogyny is directed at a family member. But I still expect a prime minister to have a better filter in the midst of a pandemic and to not have gone there. Certainly. I mean, if I was going to do it, I know what I would have said, and it would have involved a four letter word that starts with F. Yeah, I was going to say uh, GFY is what I would have said. Yes. GFY. Yeah, exactly. And so so I think you, like two things can be true at the same time. Partisan liberal Twitter. I'm looking at you when I say that some of you need to do better about this in terms of like how you react to people that you disagree with. You don't perceive to be on your team. Uh it can be true that the protester should have never said that and that like we can declare that kind of language and that kind of attack as psychological violence in politics, which is an entirely separate issue that I don't want to get into, but I can define that if folks want to. Psychological violence in politics designed to keep a democratic uh, designed to keep a politician from doing their democratic work, which is campaigning. Like we can sanction that and we can also say that the Prime Minister of Canada owed healthcare workers better to have not said that. These things can be true at the same time. Hmm. Dr. Melanie Thomas is an associate professor of political science at the uh, University of Calgary, uh, researching causes, consequences of gender-based political inequality uh, with a focus on political attitudes and behavior. You can follow her on Twitter at Melanie with two E's, Melanie L. Thomas. Of course, we link to all of our guests' handles every morning from our official account at Real Talk RJ. Doctor, it's great to see your face again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Um, This is where, you know, political party leaders have to be much more mature than the average person or the expectation is they're much more mature than the average person. I consider myself to be a public figure, and I will tell you that if you walk up to me and make a comment about my wife or my son or my family, um, there's a very good chance that I will break your fucking nose, quite frankly. Um, you know, Ryan advocating violence, you know, am I actually going to take a swing at somebody? Probably not. I'm being a little bit facetious. 
But at the same time, I thought, and hey, listen, she's a she's a, a gender studies professor, a political scientist. She has a PhD. She's put a lot more thought into this than me, and she'll demonstrate more maturity than me. The expectation there that he's got to be able to take it. And but, but I will tell you that I thought personally, my impression, my personal opinion was that the prime minister's retort. Shouldn't you be outside protesting outside a hospital somewhere was actually pretty darn decent considering the immediate rise in temperature I would have felt had I heard something like that about a loved one. And politicians, the expectation, and yeah, sure, it's the same in media, and it's the same with some business leaders, and women get it worse than men, and people of color get it worse than white people, and and yes, 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 yes. But what we expect politicians to endure with regards to things people say, not just about them, but to them, uh, I thought, my personal opinion is I thought the prime minister handled that pretty well. That's my personal opinion. I don't know about you're nodding your head, Sam. Do you have a do you have a strong opinion on it? I mean, do you have a I mean you have to sort of walk in the shoes for a bit. If somebody said that about your family member, your mom, your fiance, I mean, you know, the question is I'm not gonna turn this into like we should be punching people in the nose. But I to some sometimes I just think people uh, I'm not gonna dig myself a deep too deep of a hole. I asked you a question, I'll let you answer it, Sam. I, I think that we saw Justin Trudeau be human for a moment. Um, quite frankly, he he made a snappy comeback to somebody making disparaging remark. I, I kind of giggled at the comment. I, I will put that right on the table there. Yeah. Um, and I also think that there's, you know, I'm, I'm so hot and cold on this issue and, and even just listening to the whole interview with Dr. Thomas because we propose that the solutions to these systemic problems is to dismantle the system, to, to a very academic analysis and, and drill down to the root causes of this. And I agree with that. But this is the system we have right now, and these are the leaders we have right now. And sometimes, if you have capital P politicians like Mr. Trudeau, like Mr. O'Toole, that have the, you know, the poise and the polishedness that they're supposed to present themselves with, this makes a character like Maxime Bernier more attractive to people because he's a straight talker. He says what he means. It's what made Trump it's so popular. It's the laziest political promo of all time. He fights for you. Exactly. Like, what are you fighting? How are you fighting? What are you fighting? Who are you fighting with? What do you make of the, What do you make of Trudeau's comment there about protesting outside a hospital how, how does it rub you the wrong way did it did it amuse you it must have been something that they kind of mused about and right. kind of like were riffing on behind the scenes like had it canned and ready to go yeah i believe so um was it off yes was it accurate yes yeah i think that yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's good analysis <laughs> yeah i i just i don't know i and and quite frankly i think that Ah, do I even want to say this? I mean, the show's called Real Talk, but I, I'm not trying to incite anything. But it gets to the point where a lot of people say a lot of things because a lot of other people won't do anything about the things that are said. And uh, I'm just going to leave it at that for now. I think it's a good idea to leave it at that. Can I, if you're going to leave it at that, can I say one? You can say whatever you like. Here we go. I j just to Dr. Thomas's point, the idea that they are heightening it and the rhetoric is, you know, existential. So it's actually gotten to the point where, the, yeah, to, it's, it's, the leaders are to blame that this is getting to this point where they have to say, 
where they're, they're getting snarky like that. Corey wonders, I wonder how people would react if this was like in the 1990s when Jean Chrétien was in power. Didn't he grab a, a guy by the throat that pissed him off? He did. I mean, the guy threatened his safety. The guy threatened his security. The guy attacked him. And but yeah, the PM grabbed him by the throat. And um, did you see Chrétien's comment yesterday about Aaron O'Toole? It was great. Says Chrétien. And I won't do the accent because it'll come across the wrong way. Offensive. But <laughs> Well, not really. I mean, I can speak a little bit of French, but no, he says. Just don't do it. About Aaron O'Toole. Unlike me, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth, which I think is one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. If you were on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, that's yes. called throwing some shade. That is shade. You know, so you're saying something quite accurate with, you know, a little tongue in cheek. And I think that's very accurate to say that, you know, O'Toole is saying all the right things, but we also know that what he's saying, he can definitely and will probably walk back. And, and then someone that will, uh, you know, be a supporter of Aaron O'Toole will say, yeah, just like every other political party mm. in history. And then we will say, yeah, you're right. The team at Local Waste wants to remind you that coming up tomorrow on the show. Uh, no, what am I talking about tomorrow? I was trying to make it Friday already. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Trash talk still on Fridays. Tomorrow, eat your words, but that's a whole different thing. Trash talk coming up on Fridays. Eat your words, we choose. Trash talk, you're the author of your rants. The things you got to get off your chest. You can send them into talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's the five minutes that we use to wrap up our broadcast week. It's a lot of fun. And uh, of course, Local Waste has been in on that sponsoring uh, since show, since episode number one. Today, you can connect with them. If you need a bin in, in Edmonton, Central Northern Alberta, or Regina, or, or Southern and Central Saskatchewan, localwaste.ca. Their company continues to grow its footprint across Western Canada, not just commercial or industrial or retail customers. They also provide bins for people that are maybe doing big landscaping jobs. Maybe you're doing a purge, or maybe there's an estate scenario. Local Waste would love to talk to you today. Go local at localwaste.ca. A shout out to our friends at Athabasca University. They are Canada's online university at athabascau.ca. You can check out the website to understand exactly how AU works, how it's flexible and open. If you have a schedule that requires you to have and maintain control over your studies so you have time for your life, Athabasca University has programs and courses, some of them that can be completed over the course of a few hours, and, and some of them, the longer style courses that you would expect from your more standard post-secondary experience, but the one thing holds true. You get to it when you can, and it's always there for you where you need it at AthabascaU.ca. We're talking about comedians and being funny, and, and before we take a trip to Jasper, which we all love to do every Wednesday, we wanted to touch on the fact that, that beloved and legendary comedian Norm MacDonald left this earth at 61 years of age, uh, announced yesterday after a 10-year battle with cancer, which I think surprised a lot of people. Um, it was something that, uh, that Norm MacDonald had, had kept private, and uh, the comedy veteran, of course, leaving an indelible mark on the world of comedy and and the world writ large, uh, Sarah's pulled some of the tweets that were out yesterday. I mean, these are these are the Emmy winners. These are the icons of comedy themselves that were chiming in, including John Stewart, uh, who yesterday said no one could make you break like Norm Macdonald. Hilarious and unique 
Fuck cancer. That from John Stewart. How about this from, in, in my mind, the greatest late night host of all time? I recognize that's up for debate, but I'm a, I'm a Letterman guy. Uh, David Letterman. In every important way in the world of stand-up, Norm was the best. An opinion shared by me and all peers, says Letterman. Always up to something, never certain, until his matter-of-fact delivery leveled you. Uh, I was always delighted by his bizarre mind and his earnest gaze. David says, I'm trying to David. He says, I'm trying to avoid using the phrase twinkle in his eyes. He was a lifetime Cy Young winner in comedy gone, but impossible to forget that from Dave Letterman. And I love this one from Conan O'Brien uh, says, I'm absolutely devastated about Norm Macdonald. Norm had the most unique comedic voice I've ever encountered. And he was so relentlessly and uncompromisingly funny. I will never laugh that hard again. I'm so sad for all of us today. Uh, our team was messaging back and forth today when we learned of it. Were you were you always a big Norm Macdonald fan? I mean, well, Saturday Night Live uh, weekend update like that was when I was introduced to him on SNL. And he's just <laughs> deadpan. He's kind of dad humor in a way and just ruthless. I think I in, in my mind, I think he's I think he's the greatest weekend update anchor of all time. And that's, that's saying something because, I mean, there have been some greats, right? Chevy Chase and Dennis Miller. And and uh, I, I mean, I think even, you know, even the, the more recent uh, tandems have done really well. But I mean, Norm, Norm Macdonald, just amazing. I mean, there's a lot of people that you either adore norm mcdonald or you kind of don't really get his humor a little bit you know my cousin and i were talking about the uh, the comedians in cars getting coffee he did with jerry seinfeld where he's talking about bill cosby have you seen this exchange <laughs> i really i really hesitate to to but let us put it this way we, we can't for copyright reasons we can't play norm mcdonald's bits here on the show um and i don't think i should try to recreate no, it because that, i won't be able to do it yeah um and but you know how how uh you know Basically, how Letterman talks about his never, you know, he's always up to something. You're never certain until his matter of fact delivery just levels you. Yes. He did that to Seinfeld. And you have to watch that episode. Sam, were you a big Norm Macdonald guy? Oh, yeah. I, like his is part of that sort of that that. I don't want to say old school heyday of Canadian comedy, but it's just like, I mean, I, I think Letterman nailed it when he said his bizarre mind, because it's like when you see Norm Macdonald do a routine the gears are turning in his head in a way that you don't expect. And and his takes and, and the punchline is always something that just comes out of left field and it's just, you know, it, it's he sees the world differently. He sees the world through this sort of goofy comedic lens. And that's what I really love about him. Yeah. The, uh, Sean O'Neill uh, had tweeted uh, uh, out of the uh, an excerpt out of Norm's book. And I wanted to read it and I know it'll take a minute, but I, I think it was really neat. Uh, Norm McDonald's book. The book called Based on a True Story, a Memoir, which is a great title for a book. And, and Sean O'Neill tweeted yesterday. He said these pages from Norm's book. When I reviewed it, um, Sean O'Neill, a literary reviewer, said, I, I, I wrote that they would make for a fine eulogy. He says, and I swear I didn't mean anything by it, but they do. Here's what Norm Macdonald wrote in the final chapter, chapter 44. There is the way things are and the way things appear, and it's the way things appear, even when false, that's often the truest. If I'm remembered, it would always be by the four years I spent at Saturday Night Live, and maybe even more than that by the events surrounding my departure from that show. Uh, as long as SNL exists, then so do I. Uh, when people come to see me do stand-up, it's because somewhere in their memory, I live on SNL, dressed as a young Burt Reynolds, <laughs> insisting Alex Trebek refer to me as Turd Ferguson. And they come to see me, and I'm old and fat, and I don't mention SNL, and I do my answering machine joke, and they are happily disappointed. 
And after the show, they stand beside me and take pictures the way you would with a donkey at the side of the road. They tell me they're big fans and they don't care what their girlfriends say. They understand me, even though they know good and well that nobody else does. I'm dry. They say the next time I come to their town, they don't show up. It can be difficult to define yourself by something that happened so long ago and is gone forever. It's like the fellow at, at the end of the bar telling no one in particular about the silver medal he won in high school track, the one he still wears around his neck. The only thing an old man can tell a young man is that it goes fast, real fast. And if you're not careful, it's too late. Of course, the young man will never understand this truth. But looking back now, I can see that my life since SNL has been a full sprint, trying with all my might to outrun the wolves of irrelevancy snapping at my heels. It's all been in vain, of course. They caught and devoured me years ago, but not completely. Lauren would see to that, Lauren Michaels. My foot would still make a vague imprint. Myself would still cast a faint shadow. And years later, I would write a book and not only write it, but be in it as well. I think a lot of people feel sorry for you if you were on SNL and emerged from the show anything less than a superstar. They assume you must be bitter, but it's impossible for me to be bitter. I've been lucky. If I had to sum up my whole life, I guess those are the words I would choose. All right. When I was a boy, I was sure I'd never make it past Moose Creek, Ontario, Canada, but I've been all over the world, except for Europe, Asia, Australia, Africa, and South America. Oh, and Antarctica. But that's really splitting hairs. I mean, how many people have ever been to Antarctica? I never expected to be anything more than a common laborer, and I would have considered myself lucky to achieve that, but I was blessed with so much more. I'm a stand-up comedian. I have been for a quarter century. I've performed thousands of hours from a small club in Ottawa all the way to a small club in Edmonton. Sometimes I get big laughs, and I think I'm the best stand-up in the whole world, and other times I bomb, and I think I'm not even in the top five. Before I was famous, I had a whole bunch of jobs where all I needed was boots and people would look right past me or if they did look at me, it was with a mean look. But when I got famous, people would look at me and smile and wonder where they knew me from. If they flat out recognized me, they'd laugh and dance like they'd won a prize and I would just stand there and smile and feel warmth from their love. So the fame made the world, which is a real cold place, a little less cold. And as for my gambling, he says, it's true. I lost it all a few times, but that's because I always took the long shot and it never came in. But I still have some time before I cross that river. And if you're at the table and you're rolling them bones, there's no money in playing it safe. You have to take all your chips and put them on double six and watch as every eye goes to you and then to those red dice doing their wild dance and freezing time before finding the cruel green felt. I've been lucky. That from Norm MacDonald. I thought that was amazing. May he rest in peace and power. It's really worth going and uh, finding videos of him and all of his different bits from, I mean, I know that he thinks that he, you know, he was washed up, but heck no. His, the moth, you can Google the moth. You can Google um, his bit about cancer, which now has, yeah, has so much I mean, you just know the backstory now that he was fighting privately mm -hmm. um, and joking about it. Yeah. In, in a way that only he could. That's amazing. I get big laughs and I think I'm the best stand up in the world. And other times I bomb and I think I'm not even in the top five. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Before we get to former chief medical officer of health, Dr. James Talbot, it's Wednesday, which means we have a chance to, to take you out to the mountains, courtesy of our friends at Tourism Jasper. Every midweek, Mark, we present 
My Jasper Memories. And of course, it's an absolutely beautiful time of year out in Jasper National Park. And so we thought that this week we would focus on and feature the stunning fall colors and an absolutely amazing opportunity to really take in some of the landscapes that you won't catch anywhere else in the country. Right. I mean, look at the I mean, every fall Jasper puts on a show the the deciduous trees and shrubs through the national park start to turn color. I'd like to make a note, by the way, that I correctly identified them as the deciduous trees and not the coniferous trees. Stay in school, kids. But splashes of yellow and orange and red to the mountains. If you haven't seen it, it's worth the trip out. And these famous larch trees uh, they're only found in a few specific places in the park. You will know them when you see the multiple different spots to try to catch the other uh, color changing flora too. the most common areas. Pyramid Lake. We were lucky enough to be there a couple of weeks ago. Just amazing. Miette Road on the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge golf course. You're looking for holes eight and nine if you're lucky enough to be out there. And then, of course, in downtown Jasper in the trail network behind Old Fort Point. Now, how long is it going to last? How much time do you have to get out there? Who knows? Right. Weather dictates it. Oftentimes big, you know, if, if, if the wind rolls through, those leaves can be off the trees. And so you won't want to wait. If you haven't had a chance, you know, an early September snowstorm could be a reality out there. You're in the mountains. Right. So keep in mind, though, depending how high altitude you are, especially for those hikers, the colors might change sooner. Uh, as opposed to later. So here's a local tip. You can go on a guided tour or a, a walk with one of Jasper's great local experts. They'll give you the inside scoop on spots to learn more about how the seasons play out in Jasper's biodiversity. Uh, we went on what's called a jammer tour when we were out there. If you can imagine, these are vehicles from like 1920s and 1930s originally used in Yellowstone National Park. Imagine like a vintage car from that era, but as kind of like a stretch limo really cool the top is canvas and it buttons off so you can get an open scape it is so neat and our driver fred was just a wealth of information i mean we picked his brain for the two hours that we had him so neat if you want to learn more about this the fall colors or any of our other features in partnership with tourism jasper we encourage you to check out jasper.travel slash real talk jasper.travel slash real talk and check this out sam i'll show my screen i'll share it here you can click on, of course, our past feature episodes, if, if, if you want to learn more about our time out there or, or or hidden gem hikes or the ice hikes, I mean, those tours through the, uh, the Athabasca Glacier, iconic canoeing opportunities. But today they've posted a new blog post, and I really wanted to draw your attention to it again. Jasper.travel slash Real Talk. If you click on learn more, they've got 10 places to catch fall colors in Jasper. What an amazing resource. And we want to see your photos. We want to see your Jasper memories. And so thanks to the audience members like R. Skeins, who sent us this amazing image again on that famed Stanley Thompson designed golf course at the JPL. Look at this. Use the hashtags MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. And you could see your Jasper memories featured right here on Real Talk. This is a video that everybody's talking about. And in just a moment, we'll get to Alberta's former chief medical officer of health. But you're about to see Alberta's current chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, in conversation with family doctors online. This was the evening of September 13th. This was Monday evening. Uh, the video originally posted on YouTube, but made private and then taken down the next morning. It's significant. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you're about to find out why. Here it is. 
especially when I looked at our own trajectory of, of cases, when I looked at our neighboring provinces, it really at this point in time, I think what the interventions that will make a difference are the other public health interventions. Um, and so this is a bit of a tangent, but just to say that I, I don't believe that that contact tracing change has had a huge impact on our trajectory. I think that trajectory was set when we removed all the public health restrictions at the beginning of uh, July. And I think if we look at the experiences of all of the different provinces across the country, uh, those that have kept in um, some base level restrictions to manage the interactions and, and close contact are the ones that are not seeing the significant impact. And those of us that removed them are the ones that saw the, the significant, very steep rise in some of these acute care impacts. Pretty shocking comment uh, and admission from the chief medical officer of health uh, when it comes to the fourth wave that Alberta is experiencing disproportionate hospital admissions and and ICU uh, as well. More than 200 Albertans in ICU due to COVID-19. Quote, the trajectory was set when we removed all public health restrictions at the beginning of July. Uh, Dr. James Talbot has walked miles in these shoes. Uh, A physician, former chief medical officer of health, first in Nunavut, then in Alberta, currently an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. He has made himself available to us time and time again through the course of this pandemic. We are forever grateful, doctor. Welcome back. What do you make of the video? It's pretty significant, is it not? Thanks for having me. It is significant. I think uh, Dr. Hinshaw deserves some respect for being candid with people about the mistakes that were made. And I also agree, and we had said previously, that the, the really terrible mistake was throwing out all of the precautions at the beginning of July. Even if contact tracing had stayed in place, it would have been overwhelmed by the number of cases that that irresponsible set of actions set in motion. I've seen a lot of people and many of them. I'm not just talking about anonymous people with social media accounts and six followers. I'm talking about professors and people that work in the medical profession over the past 48 hours that have said, hey, it's not like nobody was sounding the alarm. It's not like there weren't red flags everywhere. It's not like this was almost predicted, you know, suggesting that that Dr. Hinshaw ultimately with this admission should tender her resignation. You're going to roll your eyes because every single time you've been on this show, we've been talking about this and I've appreciated your candor. But but do you think that an apology or an admission is enough here? Well, I mean, in the same spirit as Dr. Hinshaw had uh, in terms of being open and honest, let's be clear here. All right. Uh, Where we are is a crisis. And we're in a crisis that involves the ICUs already close to being overwhelmed. And we're within weeks of having to make triage decisions. And what we need more than anything else is action now. And so the question that I want to know is why isn't the minister admitting that that decision was a mistake? Why isn't the premier admitting that that was a mistake? And more importantly, what are they going to do to correct that mistake? The reason that I would prefer not to see Dr. Henshaw resign is that she's, as far as I can tell, been the only adult in the room when these decisions have been made. And, you know, not to make too fine a point of it, but if you have Premier Kenny, Minister Shandro, and uh, Dr. Henshaw in a room, and she leaves, the average IQ in that room decreases significantly. I'm inclined to agree with you. I want to let that comment settle for a minute. You're essentially saying that we're lucky 
to have Dr. Henshaw there, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, take issue if you like, because who they may appoint to replace her may be even more of a problem. We certainly saw that in the U.S. when Tony Fauci was replaced by the uh, person who actually pushed the exact same strategy that uh, Alberta seems to be engaged in. You know, immunizations aren't going up. The incentive program is a, is a bust. I mean, you don't have to worry about spending the money on it because nobody's taking advantage of it. They still haven't put any effective controls in place. People are back in the workplace. They're back at school. And to paraphrase the Game of Thrones, winter's coming. So more people are going to be indoors. Uh, so you, you put all of those things together and we're in a crisis situation that looks like their plan is to have as many Albertans get COVID as possible and hopefully recover. And then we'll get out of this because between the vaccine and the people infected, we now have enough immunity to move forward. That's a terrible strategy. Is there, uh, I mean, I mean you're, you're the physician and you're the former CMOH, but is there some way to justify a position that, listen, this thing just has to run its way through. I mean, people have been talking about the idea, this Barrington Declaration, all that bullshit that we've been talking about for for more than a year now. But there are people that continue to insist that there's some herd immunity that must be achieved. And we're more likely to get there if we have 70 or 80 percent of the population vaccinated. And let's be honest, 20 percent, one in five people aren't going to get vaccinated no matter what. So it has to run its way through. I mean, is there a way to justify that as valid policy? I think the short answer to that is no. Uh, you know, the longer answer is if you decide that you're just going to allow the disease to have its way with you, then uh, you're going to have direct costs. We, the mortality is starting to creep up again. Uh, and we're starting to see people die in the ICU and have serious consequences from the disease uh, either in the community or in the hospital. But the system is now so clogged with those people that it's going to have indirect effects on mortality and illness. So in the next two to four weeks, you know, we've already seen surgeries canceled where cancer patients needed a staging diagnosis. And they and you there are videos of them crying when they're told that that's being postponed indefinitely. If you're in a motor vehicle collision, you may not be able to get into an ICU bed because it's already occupied. If you're a young woman who is pregnant and you suffer a pregnancy complication, uh, you may not be able to get in. So, you know, to have the Minister of Health, who's responsible for the healthcare system and responsible for keeping uh, the people of Alberta safe from communicable diseases, to be uh, uh, staying on the sidelines, saying nothing, and more importantly, doing nothing at a time where that kind of crisis is about to happen. I, I think he has three choices. He needs to act effectively now to protect the system we depend on, or he needs to resign, or he needs to be fired because he's not doing his job. 
what would be uh, I'm, like, I'm, I'm curious to know, first of all, I would imagine I, I would love to be able to read your text messages. I would love to be able to see what your colleagues across Canada and chief medical officers of health across the country are saying to you or an observing about Alberta. Um, I'm not embarrassed to be an Albertan, but I am embarrassed at how Alberta is handling this right now. I'm embarrassed on behalf of a premier who seemingly cannot be embarrassed. I've never seen someone so derelict of duty. I've never seen somebody evaluate operate and disappear like Jason Kenney has over this past month of crisis. He's indicated that, quite frankly, doesn't give a damn about any of this. There's no humanity. There's no empathy. And there is absolute incompetence. What would be an appropriate response starting at the top? Because we all know how this guy runs his show, starting at the top and then coming from the health minister's desk. Well, you know, uh, if I'm just going to wish for, uh, you know, a pony, it would start off with uh, an admission that Dr. Hinshaw is right, that it was a terrible government policy to allow all of the precautions to relax the way they did, and that they knew from their modeling that it was going to be a disaster. And let me just walk that back for a second. You know, if you relax things cautiously over a period of time and people get infected, they get infected into a, in a slower, more controlled way that doesn't swamp your healthcare system. So it's not a question of relaxing or not relaxing. It's the, what was the thinking behind relaxing them all at the same time? Because that guaranteed that what we're seeing now with the hospitals being slammed was going to happen. So first, I'd like an admission from them that they made a mistake and they recognize that it's a mistake. But more importantly, I want to see one of three things. I want to see them say, we're going to reinstitute controls uh, to slow transmission and take the stress off the hospitals. Two, we're gonna push for vaccine passports now because if they've been effective in BC and Ontario and Quebec and they're effective here, we need that kind of concerted action that a government can do uh, instead of the piecemeal thing where responsible businesses and municipal leaders are bringing in vaccine passports, the system is dire enough in the hospitals right now that we need to do that across the entire province. And the third thing is that I'd like to see an admission that we are in a crisis and they will be on the job every day until we get out of that crisis. Because I can tell you that the nurses, the doctors, the anesthetists, the lab techs, the respiratory technologists, they're all going to be on their feet every single day for at least a month. Uh, 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 unless, well, no, they're going to be on their feet for a month now anyway. But unless action is taken now uh, of slowing transmission in the community and getting immunization rates up, this is going to get significantly worse before it gets better. And we're already at record setting numbers, as mentioned. I mean, I, I, I was saying you know, the other day, heaven forbid, heaven forbid there's a school bus rollover or, or heaven forbid something horrific happens on a highway and we need 15 ICU beds or we need eight ICU beds and we don't have them. I mean, right. this, and what are the what are the chances of there being a natural disaster in Alberta? Yeah, right. No, it never happens. You're right, doctor. It never happens uh, on, on our live chat. Nicole says. Here's the thing, though. Dina Hinshaw was somebody people trusted. 
And that's why I think she should resign. Hawes, meantime, says I'm rolling my eyes when people say that she should resign. Lisa says it's the doctor's attitude of whoops that just kind of kills me. And Donna makes an interesting point. She says they purposely led people to believe that it was safe in spite of the critics. And that was where she should have drawn the line. You and I have talked about this before. I mean, the, the mandate of a chief medical officer of health. Right. People trust that office. People trust that position. So how do you reconcile that? Well, I think her trust has taken a hit. I mean, I think there's no two ways about it. And I think her admission that it was a mistake is a good first step to trying to rebuild trust. I can't say where her career is going to go or what should happen in the future. But I'm most concerned about the next six weeks. And the question that I'm asking, and other people are, have a right to a different opinion, is, is the team in Alberta stronger with her being absent and potentially replaced by someone who's more likely to do exactly what the government wants? Or uh, are we going to uh, trust the person who got us through the first and second and third waves safely? And, uh, I, and I think it the worst part of the discussion is that it disguises the fact that the Minister of Health is responsible for the health of Albertans. Along with the Premier, they're the ones who have the final authority of what happens and what doesn't happen. And if we're going to hold anybody responsible, it has to be them. And I would add one more thing. The Minister of Health is not just responsible for the failure to make good decisions in July. The Minister of Health is failing to call this a crisis, and he's failing to make good decisions for hospitals now. And Dina Hinshaw has nothing to do with the operation of hospitals. That is solely the minister's responsibility. Dr. Talbot, what's your what's your speculation around why Minister Tyler Shandro, Premier Jason Kenney, and others in this United Conservative government are managing this the way they are? I mean, are we do we have to dumb it down so far to make this about freedoms i mean is, is that really what like where's your head at so i've done my best uh, to be impartial objective and evidence-based throughout this but i have to say that the pattern that the government has followed since the end of the first wave has been entirely consistent with the idea that they're comfortable with albertans getting infected with COVID that Greater Barrington Declaration, which is a complete hoax. Uh, the idea that uh, Sweden toyed with and ended up with 10 times the mortality rate of Norway and Denmark, that it, would, it was okay to let the virus have its way because eventually everybody would be immune and sure some people would die and sure the economy might suffer a little bit, but it was the easiest way forward. And every jurisdiction that has toyed with that has Sweden recanted, uh, Texas and Florida have not. They're living examples of that being carried out. But every time you turn around and looked at what the Alberta government did, they abandoned their precautions early and they uh, went ahead and instituted precautions late. And that's what they're doing right now. So the only explanation I can come up with is that they believe that the way out of this is to make sure the maximum number of unvaccinated people get the infection and those that recover will be immune. 
And so if I were going to make one point to your audience, if you have people who are listening who are not vaccinated at this point, you need to get your vaccine now because the virus is continuing to move in the community. You will get infected. And by the time you get infected, if you have serious illness, there may not be a hospital bed for you. So you get a single dose now and you get significant protection against that happening. So forget this conspiracy theories, forget every other kind of misinformation you might, you might have had. If you want to be able to have a hospital bed, if you get seriously ill from COVID, then you're going to have to get a vaccine now. Then, and that will provide significant protection for not having to go into a hospital. Because I can't emphasize this enough, when we get to the triage protocol stage, there are going to be decisions made about who lives and who dies. Uh, well, can I tell you like word on the street and then and then you can reiterate to us from a position of authority and experience? I had somebody in a position uh, of credibility tell me that and, and you'll know the better phrases for this. Mine will be layperson's language, doctor, but it, but essentially families uh, with elderly patients are being told to come up with plan A and plan B of how they want things to go if surgeries go sideways or if things don't work out because they're quite frankly not going to admit an 83 or 84 or 85 year old to the ICU because they need the bed. That stuff happens, right? I don't, I have not heard that personally. It's not an area that I would necessarily hear about, but what you're talking about is a do not resuscitate order. And the triage protocol is about who lives and who dies and having a, a do not resuscitate order in place would be part of the protocol part of how to make a decision. And so uh, it wouldn't surprise me that people are being advised to make sure, particularly if they're elderly, that they have thought about that and whether they want measures taken if they fall ill. I recognize that this is a conversation or a question you'd probably rather field privately over beers as opposed to on a, a public show that will be heard thousands of times. But uh, is there any way, is there any world uh, in which a person who has made a choice um, without a valid reason to not be vaccinated, be denied an ICU bed unless there's space. Is there any way that a jurisdiction ever approves a policy that people that did their civic duty and got vaccinated have first cracks to healthcare services? Could you ever see that happening? I suspect you're going to say no. I, I say no. With a caveat, and I'll come back to that. I say no because it's a very slippery slope mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, blaming people for their disease, and uh, and we. It's not like the human race hasn't done that for thousands of years, but things got better when we stopped doing that. And so, you know, the person who has diabetes and needs an operation to get rid of a diseased limb who hasn't been following their diet or hasn't been using their insulin to stay under control, we don't, uh, the healthcare system has no role in punishing them for not following instructions. Our job is to prevent disease, promote health, and prolong life. And, and so the answer is no. What I will say, though, is that if we get to a triage protocol situation, that it's very important for people, and they, they are available publicly, it's very important to take a look and see where you would stand on it. 
because th there will be factors in there in terms of your age, other morbidity that you have. Uh, I don't think vaccine status is is going to be one of those. Uh, I want to. Can I say something about of, triage of protocols? Yeah, please do. Um, you know, a lot of people see MASH uh, or uh, you know um, the various you know uh, hospital related shows, and they hear, hear the word triage, and I, I think it gets people sort of a comfort level because they've heard the word, they grew up hearing it on TV. When we move to a triage protocol in Alberta, it will be the signal that the crisis is over and a full-scale meltdown is going, is going on. Because I've never seen a triage protocol put in place in my entire career. And I would guess that the vast majority of physicians in Canada, unless they've served in the military or been in a war, have never seen it either. This is an extraordinary thing to be talking about in peacetime for something that is totally preventable. And it's another reason I mean, I think if the Minister of Health doesn't resign, let me go in the correct order. If they don't act in the next 48 hours to make a difference, they should resign or they should be fired. If for some reason they're kept on, the day that that triage uh, protocol is followed for the first time in Alberta, the public should demand that the Minister of Health step down because to allow a healthcare system to get to that point is, is incompatible with being a Minister of Health. Let me ask you this. Uh, Katriana is watching live and she, has, she says, hang on a second. When you talk about blaming people for, for their disease, she says he's comparing diabetics to anti-vaxxers. Uh, she says, I've never seen an uncontrolled diabetic break a healthcare system. Why can't people see this as a different kettle of fish? Yeah, and, you know, every example I had, I could give has some weaknesses to it. But the general principle is that we don't punish people once they become ill. We don't deny them care. We're not that kind of a society. So, you know, I have no trouble with vaccine passports saying that if you're not immunized, you shouldn't be able to go to non-essential things like a bar or a restaurant or a concert that you should be denied entry because it protects the staff there. It protects the other people who are there. It protects the bottom line of whatever that business is. And it actually reduces your chance as an unvaccinated person of getting infected. So I don't have any difficulty putting sanctions like that in place, but it's incompatible with a Hippocratic oath to punish people who need medical medical care and then deny it. Speaking of medical care, you need to get back to your practice. I'll make this our last question. The, the health minister yesterday tweeting or maybe his press secretary, I don't know, uh, tweeting Albertans need a way to easily show they've been vaccinated. You know, no shit, Sherlock. Uh, he says starting September 16th, Albertans will be able to access a card sized proof of vaccination. He doesn't want to call it a passport, but it's a card sized proof of vaccination through their My Health records. He says anyone having trouble accessing it can contact the pharmacy or, or call 811. Talk to their doctor. Uh, doctor Fiona Matithal out of Calgary commented seriously this is it no qr code to make it easy to use hard to forge she says this is so 1982 uh, if you're still in the office of cmoh cmoh what specifically would your recommendation be around these vaccine passports you say you have no problem with them other provinces have integrated them rel with relative ease i think is that the obvious one 
Oh, yeah, it's the obvious one. And the QR codes make it much harder to forge. And so she's, she's absolutely right. But this is an example of the half measures that the minister needs to be held responsible for. A, that could have been done three weeks ago. B, it's being done in a, in a haphazard way. We're depending on businesses and governments like the city of Edmonton, City of Calgary, to step up and introduce these things. Uh, where government could do it much more easily, the provincial government could do it much more easily. So, you know, it's a, too little, too late. And that's why he needs to, to resign or, or be fired. He's just not doing his job. Dr. James Talbot, it's a short list. Uh, if you want to talk to people that have done the very difficult job of chief medical officer of health, it's an even shorter list to get people to speak frankly like you have today. And I'm grateful for it. Thank you for this. Can I just address the elephant in the room? Yeah. Uh, Norm McDonald. Yeah. What would he have done with a promotion for Jasper by a guy named Ryan Jaspers? I know, right? Just wait till you find out. Wait till we officially announce that we're moving our studio in the new year to Jasper Avenue, downtown Edmonton, buddy. All right. All right. Dr. James Talbot, thank you very much. Yeah, there's there's a, a I, I, I guess I just kind of in a way made a bit of an announcement, but um, that's where I'm going to cap it. Because once I start talking, then I'm going to start revealing other information like it's a storefront and there's lots of glass and you're going to be okay, 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 okay. I'm sorry. Don't make me come over there. I'm just excited that we've already signed a new lease and the show isn't even a year old. I'm just I'm just excited. What do you want me to say? Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. Don't make me stop this car. Do not make me pull this car over. (laughs) You got to sit behind the driver so they can't get you. I'm going to put my fist through this painting if I'm not careful. I don't think the J at Earth Sky Art would be very happy about that. So I'll keep my expressions, physical ones, to a minimum. So um, that was a thing. To have the former chief medical officer of health say on the record that when Chandro, Kenny and Hinshaw meet and Hinshaw leaves the room, the IQ in the room drops dramatically. That's a pretty significant statement. A lot of people are saying that when Jason Kenny meets with caucus today, that uh, he should resign and uh, and everybody knows that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, this from the Titan of talk, Charles Adler, who, who noted resignation would be an admission of responsibility for the catastrophic condition of Alberta healthcare. Taking responsibility is a matter of honor, honoring the oath of office, says Chuck, as you well know, honor gets no oxygen in the mind of a dissembling demagogue. Out of the University of Calgary, if you've had a surgery postponed during the COVID-19 pandemic, they want to hear from you, by the way. Uh, Cara Sorrow is uh, spearheading this initiative, looking for people to participate in interviews for their study on the impact of COVID-19 on surgery in Alberta. If you're interested, you can contact her at KM Sorrow. That's S-A-U-R-O at ucalgary.ca. We get emails from a whole bunch of you. Like Melvin, who was in touch with us yesterday, I'm going to get to Melvin's email in just a second. Right now, I want to remind you that the team at Westworld Computers still has their, I love this, their Back to the Future sale. I was talking to Daryl about this yesterday over at Westworld. He's 
second generation. They've been in business for 40 years at Westworld independently. They're back to school and work sale. He's telling me people look forward to this all year long because there's some great incentives to get into a new iPad Pro, maybe a new Mac with Apple Care Plus, including up to $100 to spend on great accessories. You can trade in your older or your current Macs and get up to hundreds of dollars knocked off your purchase price. Plus, they're going to make sure that all your personal information is either transferred over or properly wiped from the unit that you're leaving behind. And and one last thing. I love this. This is Daryl's wording himself. They're looking for the next generation of the Pirates of Silicon Valley Edmonton chapter. He says, if, if you don't fit into that big white box... Apple Nation knows what we're talking about there. He says, if you're a little bit different in your thinking, if you have a passion for tech, if you love Apple products, Daryl and his crew at Westworld want to hear from you to employment at westworld.ca. Sales, teaching, fixing broken things, marketing, customer service, they are hiring employment at westworld.ca. Big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park at Palisades, Numeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. They've got right now all their fall favorites that includes the pecan pie blizzard which everybody's talking about the pecan pie blizzard and the pumpkin pie blizzard why are you laughing Hoyles because I just feel like you're rubbing dirt in a wound because we the- don't have it no because you keep saying pecan and you know that that's- uh, oh you want me to say pecan thank you I've never been a snob Pecan pie and pumpkin pie blizzards are among the fall lineup at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Go see them today. And you make sure you let them know when you're passing through that drive through window or ordering at the counter that you heard about them on Real Talk. They love knowing where everybody's coming from. And Real Talkers have showed up in a big way there. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can send us an email. And this one from Melvin caught my attention uh, out of Calgary. The, the subject line, Calgary Cancelled Surgeries. I thought, yeah, I can open on that one right away. He says, I've, I've only emailed a politician twice in my 46 years on the planet uh, because Premier, and we're CC'd on this one, I believe time and resources are too valuable to be wasted on dealing with mundane or less important issues. So Melvin realizes Melvin's not one of these people that are blowing up the inbox every two weeks. It says, I, how Canadian, I wish to express my displeasure uh, with your government's handling of this pandemic. While every province has had its issues during this difficult time, Alberta has performed particularly poorly during the last three waves of infection. Both my child and myself are waiting on surgeries. We met with my child's doctor this morning, and they were told that despite our child's surgery being time sensitive, They have no idea when it's going to happen, let alone when he'll even be able to see his pediatric surgeon because the surgeries are being canceled on a regular basis now. And as we left that appointment, I received a call from my own doctor's office informing me that my surgery scheduled for Monday was canceled indefinitely. I'm unsure now why you failed to take the most basic actions, Premier, to protect Albertans. And to be honest, I don't care. Right now, the health system is collapsing and there are real world implications for every citizen of the province. It may be unpopular, but some drastic action must be taken to control the spread of this virus and take pressure off our health care system. Melvin says, my family and I have followed all health orders for 18 months. We are all double vaccinated, the ones that can be anyway. The actions of the minority are impacting the wellness and the health of the majority. A vaccine passport is required in Alberta right now. Vaccination levels are embarrassingly low. Hospitalization levels are disturbingly high. Businesses and citizens do not need another lockdown, but we do need your government to take action. That from Melvin. 
How about this from Nolan, who's a teacher who wrote us in confidence? Said we wouldn't identify the school nor the school division. Nolan said they would know who I was right away. Said I wanted to let real talkers know we've been informed by our school division. We're not allowed to take a position on the vaccine, nor are we allowed to tell students we think they should get vaccinated. I was even advised not to say things like vaccines are safe or vaccines are effective, rather simply to redirect kids to public health advice and to do their own research. Nolan says it seems teachers can't teach anymore. He says it's particularly difficult considering I teach biology. I teach about immunity. Am I supposed to be agnostic about climate change? Evolution? Since when did we become so worried about backlash and liability? By politicizing science, we can't even share scientific information without it being called an opinion. That from Nolan. That's unbelievable. Just like... I literally got some of my essential vaccines at school. Like there are vaccines that you get over the course of the day. I believe it was like MMR that you get. Um, you get a booster or something like that. It doesn't really matter which one it is, but it's just like the, 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 the mind explosion that's going on on this side of the room right now is like, I have memories of lining up with my classmates for a vaccine in a classroom in my school. But Sam... And now we're not allowed to say they're effective? No, but this was before you had honorary professors with Facebook pages. So you didn't... It wasn't as controversial to simply accept the science. I just... I... The idea of do your own research, that needs to be scrubbed from our language. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing your own research, but I think that we need to teach people how to identify credible or incredible sources. There's nothing wrong with doing your own research, but it depends on I mean, if, if you're doing your own research, you know, on on some website that's an absolute disaster, then I absolutely 100% agree with you. I disagree. I think it should be listen to the experts. Well, yeah, sure. But they but, they have done the research. Listen to the experts. Well, you know how I feel about it. <laughs> you and I agree on that, but mm-hmm. I, I just think like as a premise, as a general premise, I'm not saying you're saying this, Hoyles, but I don't think you want to take the fire extinguisher. If someone says, hey, man, do your own research and say, no, 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 don't do your own research, because I think it, people's spidey senses start to tingle. But I think, yeah, listen to the experts, do your own research from credible sources and come up with rational decisions. But again, we're preaching to the choir. Like when when uh, Dr. Talbot says, you know, I wonder, you know, for members of your audience that aren't vaccinated and I'm sure that there are some, but probably not many. Like, I, I like to believe that this is an audience that's full of like intelligent, reasonable, evidence driven people. I think that's why you tune into a show like this. You know, I've, I've noticed people say to me these days, like, how do you deal with it with a member, the guy like you that just gets roasted in the public and just demoralized and, and people just say the nastiest things. And you know what my answer is, honestly? doesn't happen often anymore because I'm not on hostile territory. I'm not Daniel in the lion's den anymore. This audience believes in science. Mm-hmm. This audience is reasonable and intelligent and articulate, and, and we don't experience it as much anymore. So, yeah, maybe we're preaching to the choir here. I understand what you're saying, but I think if you start to tell people, no, you, know, you shouldn't do your own research, I just think people will get a little suspicious. Don't you? I get suspicious with the term do your own research. Well, yeah, yeah. Because it's been it's been harnessed <laughs> for you know by the alt right, by the far right. Well, and and yeah, yeah, I'm sure, sure. I'll take the point. I I, I don't want to both sides this too much, but 
Like, I think you're both right in that. Um, well, we're always both right. Do, we do your own Duh. research. <laughs> <laughs> do your own research is a dog whistle. It is like the the, the right has, has harnessed do your own research, just that phrase as a dog whistle. But I think that the nut of the problem here, the real thing that we're trying to drill down to is we need like good scientific literacy and good media literacy and good early age training at how to identify credible sources and and like quite frankly just you know equip children from early grade school with a very finely tuned bullshit meter yeah um safety blitz 73 says do your own research means stupid people have an equal standing with educated specialists it ain't right uh cory says you don't go to a dentist to fix a herniated disc you go to the expert you know what I saw? I wish I could. I, I see so many things. And I try to bring them to you, uh, real talkers every day, and we try to capture them and, and show you the screen grabs and cite the sources as much as we can. But sometimes I can't. But I saw on Twitter yesterday uh, a psychiatrist, a psychiatric resident. So a soon to be psychiatrist that said that he has been summoned into um, assisting in the ICU. And he said, and I was actually surprised at the candor. I was surprised at the direct nature of it. Uh, he said, I am a psychiatry resident. If you're being intubated by me, there's a problem. No, yeah, psychiatrists are MDs for sure. It's it's not like you're bringing in, you know, a talk show host to start intubating people. But at the same time, that's some perspective, right? Some random guy says scientists are the ones who know how to do research properly. You know, do your own research is only effective if you know how to do research properly, which is a fair point. Craig says my dad was a school principal and thinks that the anti-vax crowd for most part are people that are just afraid of needles. I don't I don't think so, Craig. No offense to your dad. I, I don't think that I don't think that that's the problem. I think it's that people believe we've heard it on the show. We get the emails all the time. I mean, I feel like we I feel terrible. Actually, as a matter of fact, we read like one percent of the emails we get. I, we, I want I want to leave time to read so many more because we're so appreciative of your engagement. But mm -hmm. even if you don't hear your email read on the show, you drive our editorial features and you contribute to the show both behind the scenes and on camera. And we're so appreciative of it. But how many people have we heard that have written into the show to say my sister has gone off the deep end? My mom I, some people say I had to block my mom on social media. I can't even talk to my uncle anymore. I mean, we've had firsthand testimony from people in this room talking about that and people that are believing things that are just quite frankly, unbelievable. You know, I mean, we're going to need the we're, we're going to need years to pass before we can look back and even try to understand how somebody believed that FDA approved vaccines developed in labs by a consortium of some of the most brilliant scientists and researchers in the world is not credible, but using an equestrian horse dewormer is. When you actually put it into words, you can't wrap your mind around it. But people are literally dictating their own approach to a global pandemic by these types of absolutely idiotic premises i'm never going to be able to understand it i never am i wanted to read a couple of things uh, dr darren markland's been an amazing friend of this show you know he was on again this week a friend of mine wrote in to just say man he sounded different this time 
He just wrote this open letter to his kidney patients. I wanted to read this to you. I'm gonna, I mean, I actually read two of, of Darren's Twitter threads uh, yesterday. The guy's been on fire at Dr. Dagley. He says, first to my kidney patients, let me thank you for all of your support. You never once complained that I was late or a little disheveled. You asked how I was doing, even though you were the one in need. Let me assure you it was because I was running my clinics overtime to catch up with you after we had lost touch during the previous three waves. These are kidney patients, right? This isn't somebody looking to get their nails done or, or, or their haircut. These are kidney patients. We'd lost touch during the previous three waves. And I thank you for listening to me when I talked about vaccination, despite the fact you had already done the right thing. He says, I want to thank you for the cards, the cookies, even the gifts from your gardens, not just for me, but for the staff, always rearranging my schedule and feeding me lunch because he says, apparently I can get hangry. He says, I can't say it's unexpected, but I've been stalling on this for a while. I'm going to need to close my kidney practice again, but it's temporary. I swear the ICU is getting very busy and it's all hands on deck. He says, I worry about you. My colleagues have always been there for me and they will be there for you. And I will be in contact with my staff for emergencies. But now for the big ask, he says, we've known each other for a while. I hope I've done enough to build trust in our relationship. I ask that if you have avoided vaccination, despite our talks that you reconsider the hospital is full. This is from an ICU doctor. I worry that if you get sick, you may not get the care you need. And what breaks my heart. And I am literally tearing up as I write this is that if it comes to triage, like Dr. Talbot just talked about. If we get there, many of you will not qualify. I don't want to tell your family members that, most of whom I know personally. Also, I need you to convince your family and friends to get vaccinated. Be nice. You know them. Build bridges. It's really important. And when this is over, and I hope it is soon, we will get together again. We will catch up. That's from Dr. Darren Markland. Now, he shared a heartbreaking experience of his time in the ICU and and. I want to leave you essentially with this today and there will be a call to action coming up in just a minute. This is nice. You doctor writing firsthand about a patient. This is real life in Alberta. This was out yesterday. She was a single mother of three girls between the school closures and night shifts. She hadn't found the time to get one shot, let alone two. She did make her daughter's lunches that day. They were on the kitchen table. Her eldest called 911 when she slumped over the sink and couldn't get up. That's where the paramedics told me they found her with one of her children trying to give her a glass of water. She was so ashen they didn't think they would get her to the hospital in time. They went with lights and sirens. Her heart stopped as they transferred her to the stretcher. I could hear the ER staff running the code. Fully gowned and practiced, they had her back in minutes. I could tell by the color of her lips. And the frown on the respiratory therapist's face that it wouldn't last. I walked over to the room and I started looking through her history on the computer. She'd been sick for days. There was a positive COVID test in her file from days ago. And in the room, they started chest compressions again. Another round of epinephrine. I know the ER doc. She's the kindest soul I know. And her, high, her eyes pled with me to take her to the ICU. We keep getting her back, she said. Yeah, but we can't oxygenate her, I replied. But we both know the mortality of a COVID arrest. I cut her off before she tells me about her children. I write a note in her chart. I try not to make eye contact with the paramedics who brought her in in desperate fear that they will tell me more personal details of this young woman, that they will make her real. Of course, I flinch. Where are her children? Grandma has them. I reflexively clench my jaw, knowing that her children are sick. 
was grandma vaccinated? And that's where the thread ends. Lunches on the counter means that the kids were on their way to school too. keep in mind. This is what ICU doctors, nurses, docs, nurses in the ER, respiratory attacks, paramedics, firefighters, and everybody else is dealing with right now. Let's make it our personal mission to do something meaningful. We're likely here. I'm, I'm hearing while we've been live doing the show today that there's uh, been an announcement. We expect to potentially hear from the premier today at, in Alberta. Um, I'll be curious to know what that looks like. If it's anything less than a resignation, I don't know what to say, but you know, we'll take it on tomorrow morning. The show happens because an engaged audience like you participate in the conversation, driving it on platforms like Twitter with our real talk RJ hashtag that's powered by the team at Park Power. And in Alberta, you know that you have a choice where you get your internet, electricity, and natural gas at parkpower.ca. You can use the promo code 2021-REALTALK to sign up and get $70 off your first bill. You can compare rates. It's convenient to switch over on the website. I know because I did it myself. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider with 10% of their electricity profits going to nonprofits, to charities in the communities where they live and work. You can find them at parkpower.ca. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge is making way for the new brand new lineup of Jeep Grand Cherokees and of course that Grand Wagoneer everybody's trying to get their hands on this one Jeep's return to the luxury full size SUV market this is the one going head to head against Escalade what a beautiful truck it is it means they got to clear their showroom of what they have in right now including Grand Cherokee Laredo's beautifully equipped for under $47,000 you can find them online or in person today at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep and a shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy. It's, it's a week long of positive reflections this week, a very special week as we honor and pay tribute to our dear friend and Real Talk editorial board member, Julie Rohr. We're soliciting public uh, expressions of adoration, if you want to call it that, and, and so many personal notes to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And of course, another edition of Positive Reflections coming up Monday morning. But we're opening every show this week with emails that are helping us set our focus and manage and navigate some of these choppy waters. Kubi Energy, providing sustainable energy solutions across Western Canada. Learn more at kubienergy.ca. Show tomorrow is going to be a good one. As mentioned, I'm hoping to open it with email after email of you keeping it real. Your real talk. You can send it into us now to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Check my tweet for details on our first annual Real Talk Golf Tournament coming up next June 23rd. Make it a great Wednesday, friends, and we'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Editorial Producer Sarah Hoyles, Technical Producer Sam Brooks, Managing Director Josh Dunford, Account Coordinator Tanya Franklin, Merchandise Operations Katie Cook-Chivers, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.